0: Dan, before we get started, I want to say congratulations, Spidey Rich, which is one of our very active mailbag members, people hear us talk about Spidey Rich all the time, got married last
1: week. Oh, fantastic.
0: So congratulations, Uh, he's on Instagram, Spidey underscore Rich. And he's got little honeymoon photos up and stuff. I'm following him the last like couple of weeks, and it's it's amazing. So I don't know. Like I feel like like one of our our um, remote our satellite people out there yeah. is just having time in their lives. And he's on honeymoon right now, I think. So awesome. So, well, I
1: hope that they uh, sit down with this episode and uh, give it a listen while they engage in honeymoon acts.
0: I oh my god, are we in background for a honeymoon?
1: Oh, for a wedding night. Someone's getting fucked while we're talking. That's for sure. <laughs> it's usually
0: you.
2: Yeah. What kind of homebrew tactics do you have when doing a water-based campaign that you feel you had to make to make being around water make a little bit more sense to you?
0: Uh, I honestly had a whole bunch of stuff about drowning and um, breathing mechanics. I've gone off in the past on previous episodes about it. After last week's episode, I'm a little more comfortable with it now. The The only thing that I would probably do is say that if you are in active combat, so, you know, you have a number of rounds equal to... Or number of minutes equal to your constitution yeah, yeah, modifier yeah, yeah. Plus, plus one. I would cut that number in half. So, it counts as double the amount of time if you're in active combat. Well, you're putting a little initiative. bit more effort than yeah. just
1: lazily swimming down. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I just want them to avoid underwater combat a little bit more. Yeah. Um. For me, honestly, I, as a DM, avoid that. We've always uh, said, especially when it comes to combat, that water... And doing like open air combat, that adding that third dimension causes a whole slew of issues. And I run with tables that are very tactically centered, tactically minded, um, which involves miniatures and and battle maps, or because of online tokens and roll twenty. Figuring out a good way to do lateral movement. It uh, will save you a lot of hassle if you're trying to run one of these things. Um, The big thing I do is I have a collection of little blue D6s that I got when I won a Warhammer tournament a few years ago. And I put those down as like you are one square down or one square up. I use pennies. Yeah, right. Right. So. So just being able to put a little marker that I could see of how um where your character is positionally in the vertical plane
0: the other thing that i do just on that same note dan is um on the 2d grid every other diagonal is one and a half or or is the double right so you're yeah. moving one and a half so th- if you're moving a diagonal line is five then 15 then 20 then 30 yeah when i'm doing 3d combat at all everything is a one-to-one and that's just rules for everybody. well you just don't want to do pythagoras I, I, I can't, and I can't expect anybody else to as <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, that's fair.
2: It's a Mimic, the Roundtable Dungeons & Dragons discussion podcast, where you never know what you're going to get.
1: Yarrin, welcome to another episode in our conversation on mob mentalities, For where we so look it's... at-
0: What? Nothing. Jesus, Christ. We're,
1: we're doing going. boat guys, so I thought pirate voice.
0: Okay. I'm going to do
1: next episode. <laughs> <laughs> No, please don't. As a Warcraft player, I can't handle you being a Murloc the entire time. <laughs> anyways. So, anyways, <laughs> so anyway, welcome to another episode in our conversation on mob mentalities, where we look at some of the aquatic humanoids out there that make up the enemy armies in Dungeons and Dragons. I'm Dan, and with me today is Adam, and this episode is called Sahuagin... Sahuagin? S-Sawajin? Sahuagin? 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 Sahuagin. Sahuagin. Armies! Underwater Odd Marauders. Underwater Odd Marauders. I like the tongue twister ones, to be honest. I do. I know you do. Yeah. That, that's why I did this. Yeah. We have reached out to our army of friends and allies to help us break down what a sahawagan army looks like in 5th edition. First though, before we jump off the deep end, or jump into the deep end, let's discuss the pronunciation of the stupid fucking word. Officially speaking,
0: according to actual sources like uh, Jeremy Crawford and Chris Perkins and whatnot, it's... Sawjan, Sawagan, or Sahuagin. Sahuagin by far sounds the most ridiculous and bizarre to me. Yeah. Which is why I created a little pronunciation, MP3, and I farmed it out to everybody involved in this episode, and I said, say Sahuagin. Let's get used to putting this in our brains because these are nonsense words. Yeah. I'm randomly choosing one of them. Um I want you to know that not everybody listened to that, so we're gonna be all over the fucking map on They keep coming up with these ridiculous fucking words. Poor Megan. I did it to Megan again. Yeah. She's got two ridiculous words in hers. Um, and so we're going to really get married to Sahuigan as much as we can on this episode. But when you're running your game, Dungeon Masters, it doesn't matter what you say as long as it is consistent. And they even give you a fucking out in the book on these guys. You can call them sea devils.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that that that's completely true. I have always called them Sahawagen, um when we've played uh, in my games, and they have actually come up quite a lot for me in my games. Oh, I, really? I've never seen them in mine. Honestly, I think it's because when um, we're sitting down and Nick needs to have a aquatic themed monster to throw at us, he goes Sahuagin, uh, right? Yeah. It, it's a hard habit to break once it's been established, so I'm, I'm going to echo what you said there. If you've got something at your table, just be consistent with it, Right. There are some hard and fast ones that are not difficult, like it's uh, as Asmodeus, not Asmodeus. Yeah, one right? of
0: them is Mozart. Yeah.
1: yeah, this isn't one of those. This one, you could be a little bit more flexible.
0: Honestly, with. if I was really on my A game, I would have the four or five different pronunciations on the table, and I would say, that one is in Dwarvish, this one is in oh, Common, yeah, yeah. this one is cool. in Elvish, right? So that you would hear it over and over and over again, and it wouldn't matter what the players say. Any one of them would be okay. However, for consistency's sake, for, for the world building aspect of your own campaign, you, the dungeon master, should be consistent when you say this Sahu again moves from here to here, right? Yeah. So.
1: Also, as a DM, when you start using these guys, you're going to have to do a little bit more legwork than what we have seen with the other mobs provided. Or um, fin work. Or fin work. Flipper work? Now I'm thinking about dolphins. Didn't I just call Brad a hairless man dolphin? Rel- you you did. Recently. And like he took it personally. I, I, <laughs> Sorry, Brad. I'm not. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Stick it up your blowhole. <laughs> What's the porpoise of this conversation? <laughs> oh, man. This conversation is Finn. Oh, okay. Anyways, you are going to have to do a little bit more legwork with them because as with the ambiguity of exactly how to pronounce their name, there is a lot of uh emptiness when it comes to support lore wise when it comes to the Sahawagan in fact a lot of the lore we see is closely tied with sea elves specifically right so um before we really dive into what we see with Sahawagan I want to look at sea elves sure
0: Uh, look looking at the natural enemy of these mobs Gives
1: us an idea of what the mobs themselves are like. Yeah, and when a mob is so under supported supported like these are, you got to go where you can to find information on them, right? So we're going to start off in the Storm King's Thunder. Sea Elves, in this instance, use the Merfolk stat block and are typically favorable to the party. They also have some minor changes to that Merfolk stat block. You encounter them whenever you're out on the ocean... Um, Or in the sea here. Now, these small changes to the merfolk stat block um, include the fact that sea elves, shockingly, are elven. And thus gain the elf subtype.
0: They also have fucking legs and merfolk don't.
1: Yes. They've
0: they've got fishtails.
1: Yeah. Um, They're also chaotic good. Which merfolk, I believe, are neutral, if anything.
0: Right, but that's exactly what we're talking about. You look at this chaotic good, and polar opposite on the alignment chart is lawful evil, which is where the Sahuagin
1: lives. Next, as with all other elves, they do get advantage on saves versus charm effects, and are immune to any sort of magical sleep effects. Sure. They also are a water race that has dark vision to it stock. So, yeah.
0: yeah, well, I mean, wizards learned with tritons eventually right the reprint well
1: well, the thing is like storm king's thunder was relatively early yeah like they didn't necessarily learn their lesson with tritons they just built the sea elves and that's what made them learn their lesson right by going oh shit yeah we should totally give them dark vision i
0: thought it was a bunch of people that were bitching but i mean merfolk don't have no dark vision either which is and look I've got. I'm going to talk about it later in the episode. I've got a thing about the dark vision. So. Yeah, cool. We mentioned it last episode. We mentioned it,
1: it a lot. We really need to stop harping so much on dark vision, but we won't. But we won't. Anyways, um, they also speak both common and elven. Sure. Okay, that makes sense. Eventually, we did get a little bit more info on C elves in Mordenkainen's, where they became a playable race. Here we see that on top of the generic elf stats. They got a small boost to con scores, the ability to speak Aquin on top of their common in Elven, and proficiency in Spears, Trident's light crossbows, specifically light crossbows, not heavy, and nets. A lot of these have, uh, hey, these guys like fishing. Yeah, like that makes sense to me. Yeah, um, they also gain a swim speed of 30 feet and can breathe normally in air and water. Now this is important. Um, last episode, we did bring up uh, drowning mechanics, and yep. we had a question pop up on the Reddit about how to handle speech underwater and, and stuff like that. When it comes to someone like a sea elf who says specifically and explicitly that it can breathe air and water equal, zero penalty. Absolutely. Right? However, if you are just trying to hold your breath to survive as you swim through the twilight zone, you're going to lose large swaths of your air as you
0: speak. Well, according to Sage Advice, Jeremy Crawford just straight up said,
1: if you talk... Oh, your air's gone. You're drowning.
0: Yeah, you are in choking mechanics.
1: Yeah. And um, honestly, because of how generous the normal just holding your breath mechanics are, I'm okay with this. It really makes your spell casters have to think about what they're doing. And if you've got a storm sorcerer who uses the subtle spell meta magic, I mean... Yeah, you're fine. You're fine. This gives sorcerers a little bit more utility. Yes. And they need it. They do. The other thing that uh, sea elves get, and this is uh, one of the coolest things in my opinion... We see that they have a special affinity to the creatures of the water, and because of that, they have an ability to communicate with uh, rudimentary signs and sounds with any beast that has a swim speed. This is very Aquaman.
0: Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's not a direct language. That
1: yeah, they, that it, they it, have. Like, it's it's rough. Like it's, it's like rangers get, with with animals, right? Yeah, um, I I would get a lot of this feel as well with furbols. Furbolgs get that same. They could talk with plants and animals, but like... It's very crocodile dundee. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. There are now a couple interesting lore ideas we can pull from the sea elf stat block because this is the amount of work we have to do to get some lore into this episode. Yeah. Um, first, sea elves can functionally live full time in the water. Their innate proficiencies... Show that they prefer light, piercing weapons that won't burden them in the waters. Hence, why they get a light crossbow and not a heavy. Sure. Okay. I would also say a hand is probably a bit too weak for use in the water. Like it's more of a specialist, assassiny weapon. And I don't see sea elves as caring. assassiny. Yeah, that's fine. They don't really yeah. care about hand crossbows. Yeah. Um, they also get that bonus to con and dark vision. Which, to me, implies that they like to swim to the depths of the Twilight Zone that we talked about last week.
0: Except they can't make it that far. At 500 feet, which is still in the Sunlight Zone, your bones break. Uh, yeah.
1: Uh, But there is a con save to that. Yeah, but for every... And they get a bonus to con. So I I think that's where they're leaning with the mechanics. Right, but you,
0: you still have to go down another 150 feet, which means that that save gets harder and harder and harder and harder. As you go down. Oh, yes. That sucks. I would say the concept is equally
1: about uh, the temperature. Yeah, but I I would say it's pressure as well in that respect. Now, the reason why I did want to go in this route is because you read the flavor text in Kindness, and it does lead you to believe that the sea elves in eras past had found portals to the elemental plane of water somewhere in their travels of the deep. And thus, you can find sea elves thriving on the elemental plane of water today. That's this day, cool, yeah, right? That is, that's that's badass. I, I I really like that idea of where they swam deep enough to find this.
0: I assume that so sahuagin are also on uh, the elemental plane of water I, as well.
1: I, yes, but I I I would actually say far less of a number. The main reason why is sahuagin are incredibly territorial creatures and. Anything that I, I say they would recognize where that portal to the elemental plane of water is, they wouldn't go into it because that would be removing themselves from their territory. And they're smart enough to know that. Well,
0: just being territorial doesn't mean that you stay in your territory. It means that you range to oh, from they,
1: your territory. Oh, they 100% do expand. Um, yeah. They're not as expansionistic as, say, a hobgoblin or a... The orcs or Or the whatever. orcs, right? Yeah. But... Uh, if you are in or around water, you are at threat of being raided by Sahogan.
0: Yeah, but I feel like they range to and from. Even if they're not expanding, they will... I mean, they, they've picked their territory clean. Mm-hmm. They're going out there to get metal and things from the surface, or they're out there to get food and yeah. riches or whatever it is.
1: I could actually see a bunch of Sahogen, um priests trying to like pull otherworldly elemental plane of water level sharks into their waters to use as um instruments in their raiding and their expansion
0: i would assume that when you're on the plane of water you would see different areas that are surrounded by guards all the time because you they know that in these depths there's a portal and so who again are on the other side of it and so it's protected to keep them at bay from coming and, and going as they please. Yeah. Like that has got to be one of the, uh, one of the main factors of the Sahuagin going to and from the plane of water. Yeah. Uh, is these portals, they're so rare, but also so important.
1: Yeah. I, I would agree with you. Uh, real, just quick aside, the elemental plane of water, does it have land? Does it have islands? It does. Yeah. I, 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 always give it like tropical island level stuff, right? Yeah, it might, it does. I mean, honestly,
0: if the elemental plane of air does, it's, I think the closer you get to the center of the plane, the fewer it is, Mm-mm. like the fewer areas are. It. But they all border upon each other, right? So yeah. if you get close to the plane of fire, then you're dealing with acids and boiling waters and whatnot. So you, it's uninhabitable. Um, the element of plane of air gives you storms. Land gives you islands, right? And so, and they all kind of touch yeah, in different ways. That, so. that
1: makes lots of sense. I like that. Anyways, so um, knowing that... Sea Elves then delve too deep. Um, I do want to start pulling some attention to the Sawagan here. Um, As we mentioned, they are fiercely territorial and consider the entire sea to be their domain. Any intelligent society or creature infringing on their land are swiftly targeted and taken out, often by bellowing on their eerie conch shells to call it a hunt, which often includes Sawagan's favorite pet that I mentioned earlier, Sharks. Coastal villages have taken to naming the Sahuagin Sea Devils, because as a race, these fishy fiends have no mercy or compassion, and if they deem you are trespassing on their seas or near their seas, they will hunt you down and slaughter you and anything else in the general vicinity of you when they find you.
0: Interesting sidebar. When I was doing my research, the idea of being called Sea Devils is considered a racial slur to the Sahuagin? I would
1: imagine so.
0: In Pathfinder, however... It's the same thing. They're still so again, and they're still called Sea Devils by the Land Dwellers, but they've embraced it and they use it as a fear tactic. Cool. Which I thought is a really interesting spin on this, this slur. So
1: Yeah, we had once, uh, what was it? it? You had a devil that we fought in one of our games that was like... A, it was
0: literally a sea devil. Yeah. Yeah, and it was... Uh, it was a mini from Pathfinder because they look so different mm-hmm. and it looked more demonic. And so I wanted to lean into uh, an aquatic devil of some sort that would yeah. make a deal with you. And like the closest thing we have
1: is an ice devil, and they don't quite.
0: They're not. They're not even oceany. No, no,
1: not really. Right. So it it added this really really cool flavor to them. There are a lot of aquatic demons.
0: You get your Hezrus and your Wastroliths and stuff. There's not a whole lot on the devil side. No,
1: no. I I think that's because a lot of the demons tend to be like wet and moist and and they hold on hold on hold on and, hold on hold on, hold on. on. moist. You didn't have to do that. But all of the devils go fire, right? And they go uh, yeah, the only, chain. and The only them, like, real water that I that out. I
0: expect to see
1: anywhere in the Nine Hells is the River Styx. And you're not fucking around in that. Now, Sawagan, I mentioned sharks earlier. They do have a close tie with those real-world terrors of the ocean. And the god they worship, Sekola, is primarily the god of sharks. So it tracks. This further increases tensions with our... Favorite blue hued elves because their main deity, Deep Sashelis. I can't say that name probably. Sasha
0: Yeah. Sashelis.
1: Yeah. Um, that elven god of the deep is a uh, sworn enemy to all shark kind, which, okay, cool. That you're an ocean god and you hate sharks, huh? Sure. I mean, they're, they're a valuable part of the ecosystem. Like that one kind of sh- stunned me. His image is a dolphin, that's why. Oh, okay. So this rift between the two races has become so ingrained that Sahawagan, in their very evolutionary path, have worked out ways to help them in this war. Mutations in the Sahawagan brood are common, with hardy young being born with four arms or fins and wide shark-like jaws. There is also a rare chance that a Sahawagan born close to some sea elves will be born as something called a malenti. Malenti are physically identical to a sea elf in every way but retain their brutal Sahawagan minds. And friends, Sahawagan are some of the smartest mobs we've covered. Like they are authentically brilliant compared to an orc or goblinoid or Yeah,
0: they're they're more on on par with your Yuan-ti. Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. Now, Malenti are often used by the shockingly intelligent fishmen. As spies and assassins, infiltrating sea elf villages and weakening them to make the coming invasion that much easier. This is so common that most sea elves live in constant fear of this and have become extremely xenophobic. I mean, they're elves. Sure. Um, But they're also suspiciously paranoid if the hint of a Malenti in their midst strikes. That's a great way to fuck with sea elves. You just walk in and be like, hey. Hey, uh,
0: I know that you guys don't like us right now, but did you know that there is a spy among you?
1: Well, yeah, but if you have a sea elf in your party as well and he's not from their tribe. Oh, That's a problem. That's a problem, right? They're not just going to let any other sea elf in either. Now, sea elves are chaotic, good. But this is the one thing that makes them very isolationist. And I like that because they really build up this, uh, this feeling that sea elves just want to be there to help out. They just want to be there to be the dudes of the ocean that help. Right? They're just a bunch of surfer bros with blue tanned skin who want to, you know, make sure everybody's living the island life. But then you have this one fucker that comes in and tries to, you know, monetize everything and they they go to shit. Fuck you, Jimmy Buffett. Dan, you took me on a ride for that <laughs> one. I was not expecting that. All right. So we
0: by looking at CL's, yeah. We can see with the way that they operate, the fact that the uh, Sahuigan obviously are willing to to infiltrate. They're smart enough to do that. They are tacticians. Yeah. There's nothing in the lore that tells us that they are tacticians.
1: No, we got to draw it from their stat blocks.
0: Yep, and we have to look at, at Sea Elf and uh, Triton lore to get that, right? Mm-hmm. Because those are their two sworn aquatic enemies. Yes. Um, there's not a whole lot about Sea elves and Tritons working together, strangely. No,
1: I, honestly, they they feel, the, feel like they fill the same boot, almost.
0: Uh, that's very different in my head. When you look at even the artwork well, for uh, Triton versus yes, the Sea yes. they're true. Tritons are far more um, naturalistic and barbaric. Mm-hmm. They are they're going to be the the barbarian tribe to the Rangers rain or to the Sea Elves Ranger. Right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're still out in the wilderness, but they're two different flavors, two sides of the same coin, um, in my opinion.
1: So, before we move on to start breaking down some of these stat blocks and see what kind of information and lore uh, we can pull from them, let's hit up a quick commercial. Did you hit record?
0: Yeah, go ahead. So, as some of you have noticed, obviously, Dan and I launched a bit of an informal side project where we go through one of the Dungeons & Dragons publications at a time and determine the pros and cons and our overall thoughts. And the first
1: one we did was Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frostmaiden. We went over almost every page, covering moderate spoilers for the adventure without giving the ending away. We covered things that interest players or maybe useful to dungeon masters to get inspiration from.
0: I always love going through the monsters and the items and the player options.
1: I really enjoyed seeing all the different forms of the Frost Maiden and investigating everything about her frosty layer to her maiden head. Dan, what the fuck, man? I need you to take these commercials way more seriously. I show up every time with the
0: utmost professional attitude. <sighs> ah what you professional
3: yes
1: professional what dick at least i'm not an amateur dick i don't what i what 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 is your problem what's an amateur dick i don't know obviously by definition it's a dick that doesn't get paid does your dick normally get paid i mean it should well i'm not sure that canada's ready to reach you just a penny adam go fuck yourself dan (laughs) it should be getting paid in pounds if you get what i mean You can pound it on your own time. We're trying to record a commercial. Okay,
0: anyway, Dick, we're going to periodically continue working our way through new releases as they come. Gross. As well as discussing some of the published material from Wizards of the Coast that has already hit the shelves. There's a lot of info out there for 5th edition, but not every DM or player knows which book to pick up next or what to expect from an adventure module. After all, there's some great additions to the library, and then
1: there's, well, Rick and Morty vs. D&D. This series is going to be sporadic and unscheduled, so keep your eyes out for these and let us know if you agree with our assessments. We hope that you'll
0: be able to use the series as a guideline for which books deserve your attention for your own personal needs as a D&D player, but keep in mind that they're going to be full of moderate spoilers for the adventures and they aren't meant to tear into specific mechanics or stat
1: blocks. As we go on, you'll be able to find previous Legend Lore episodes in a playlist on our YouTube channel, or check out the episode guide to see what books we've already covered by looking at the post on r slash it's a mimic on Reddit. Now, let's get back to the episode, shall we? Fuck, one of these days we're going to record a normal fucking commercial. I highly doubt it. Well, whose fault is that? Mostly yours. Disagree. So Adam, as we are about to dive into these stat blocks, I just want to say all of the stat blocks we're covering today, you guys can find in the Monster Manual or Ghosts of Salt Marsh. We also leaned on uh, Mordekhai's Tome of Foes and Storm King's Thunder for some additional research into these guys. Like we said, to find any sort of lore or information is a bit of a stretch, right? Yeah. So so we we really dusted off our librarian. Boots this week.
0: We rolled a used library from Call of Cthulhu. Hey,
1: yeah. starting us off with a bang, really, is Dave and Eberron breaking down the Sahagin stat block.
4: Hey everyone, Dave here, coming to you from Corvair again, as per usual. I was talking to Adam and Dan the other day, and we got talking about sahuagin and uh, there was a couple of things that they wanted me to go over now. I absolutely love the aquatic theme, and these guys tend to work their way in just about every time because they're the perfect, uh, I mean, I don't want to use the word fodder, but let's be honest, it's fodder for your, your sea going adventures. Uh, I mean, they're medium humanoids, they, they, they swim, they can be up on the land, they're amphibious, right? They're, they're a little bit of everything. They can ride sharks, which I thought was really cool, but we'll we will get into that in a second. But I mean, these guys, they, like they've got an armor class of about 12, so they're easy to hit but their hit points are 4d8 plus 4, which sounds like a lot more than it probably comes across as. It's, you know, an average of about 22, but I mean, these guys are hittable. Uh, They do have a speed of 30 feet and a swim speed of 40. Uh, So I like the idea of having these guys, you know, kind of attack your ships, being raiders almost. Uh, Their strength, dex, and con, uh, as well as intelligence and wisdom are all a little bit above average, between a 10 and a 13. Uh, but their charisma is a little below at a 9. For skills, they get a perception of plus 5. And their senses uh, are darkvision out to 120 feet, which is pretty darn far. And a passive perception of 15. The language they speak is, so who again? Now these guys are a one-half CR. So again, they're not as strong as, as you know, they might come across as. Uh, for their abilities, they do get one called Blood Frenzy, all right? And this gives them advantage on melee attacks against creatures that don't have full hit points. This could make or break an encounter. How many of you guys, players or DMs, uh, have your PCs come in to a new session as as not up to your full hit points? I mean, they always love the long rest and short rest. But I mean, it is often where they they are not at their, their full hit points when an encounter begins. And this can actually really make a big difference in that. Uh, They do get the limited amphibiousness. Uh, I got that first time. I'm pretty proud of myself. Uh, The Sahugan, they can breathe air and water, but they can't be out of the water for more than about four hours at a time or else they suffocate. They do need to to jump in and get a little wet here and there. Uh, They also get an ability called shark telepathy, and, and they can just magically command any sharks within 120 feet. Uh, using their limited telepathy. Now it doesn't really get into too much of what the limited telepathy is uh, in the stat block, but I assume it's just simple commands. Uh, You're not going to be able to have complex conversations with it. For its actions, it does get a multi-attack, so it can make two attacks, one with its bite and one with its claws or spear. The bite, it's a plus three to hit, five foot reach, and it does 1d4 plus one piercing. The claw is a plus three to hit, five foot reach, and also does 1d4 plus one Uh, But this time it's uh, slashing damage. Now the spear, uh, it can be a melee or a ranged attack, as spears are known to do. Uh, It's a plus three to hit, five foot reach, with a range of 20 or 60 feet. And that does 1d6 plus one piercing, or it does 1d8 plus one piercing if used with two hands to make a melee attack. Uh, now again, I already, I already spoke about this a little bit. These guys are great for being boarding parties if your guys are on a ship between here, there, or the next place. I mean, I use Eberron a lot, so if my guys were going from Corvair to Zendric or Sarlona, maybe they'd come across some of these guys. Maybe they'd be raiders with like pirate islands up in the Lazar Principalities. Uh, or if you're a fan of the Forgotten Realms and Faerun, uh, maybe this is something you run into uh, on your journey to Chult. Now again, this Blood Frenzy ability that they have, you can make this work to your advantage, and literally, pun intended, I suppose. The The advantage on an attack roll is, is something that is just absolutely, I mean, it's hard to put a dollar value on it. I had a Barbarian, a Triton Barbarian, who had a magic item called the Knuckle, which was just like brass knuckles, and they ran around punching stuff because the Knuckle just gave them advantage to hit. I mean, a guaranteed hit, even with, you know, one damage uh, plus strength a guaranteed hit is far more powerful than you know maybe a d8 uh, for damage rolls like because you'll then you only get it part of the time right don't underestimate the the idea of getting advantage on all hits when the opponents don't have their full hit points that can really change the action economy in the sahurigan's favor quite easily especially considering that they get Uh, ranged attacks and multi attacks like it's it uh, anyway guys i got a lot of stuff i gotta do getting ready for this draconic prophecy i'm like 80 percent of the way there so i'm gonna send it back to adam and dan you guys can always find me on the r slash it's a mimic subreddit and i will talk to you guys next time
1: i get why he did it but he was calling the base creature here fodder do you agree with him 48 plus four for a cr half This isn't fodder. This is a threat.
0: It is a threat. It is a threat in tier one. But you are going to run into a lot of them. And you're going to have Sahugan bodies littered about the playing field. Right? And that's just how it's going to be. So I understand why he calls them fodder. They're not fodder like hobgoblins look at goblins are fodder. The way that Yinogu looks at That gnolls, your standard run-of-the-mill gnoll, that's fodder. These guys are still very much a part of the society. There is a purpose for every one of them. And they are the strongest of the strong to even be able to live this long. This is a warrior culture mm-hmm. that has had to survive this far. And just because they're friends with sharks doesn't mean that they have an easy time under there. They're still prey. Though oceans are scary places. Yes. And it does not take much to die alone down there. So fodder... No, hell no. I'm, no I'm, I'm with
1: you on that one. They're not fodder.
0: Dave runs a tactical game, right? He does. And that's why he
1: sees them that way. He wants the really cool abilities. There's so, a thing I've noticed with a lot of these stat blocks. That the base level creature is always going to be this lower CR. It almost feels like they're inviting DMs to be like, hey, add a class level to this.
0: I See, okay. First of all, I resist the shit out of that. Do not add class levels to your mob monsters. You cannot effectively balance your game that way there's no
1: possible way to do that not not the majority of them i would say maybe like a big bad evil guy would be the only one i would do with that but like they're they're they it feels like they're trying to get you to be like hey add something add your own flavor here right yeah but that
0: flavor should be the environment or the others that are with them these are your base population i don't walk down the street and go you know what i would like to add soldier uniform to that random pedestrian over there. That's what these guys are, right? Like, that guy needs to be you in a gladiator tilt. Pe- you don't go right?
5: people watching
0: like I do. No, when I go people watching, I go, which which one of you is the most likely to be a serial killer? Which one is the least likely? <laughs> the one looking back at me through... Oh, wait, that's the mirror shop. That's me, shit. <laughs> uh, and honestly, the rule is, whoever's the least likely is probably the serial yeah, killer. Yeah, that, that's a- Anyway... No, I, I look at these as these are citizens, they're NPCs, these are shopkeeps. It's just their society runs like Klingons.
1: Yeah. Your, no, that's, that's, your average Klingon that's is
0: you. not foddered. They're not they're not sitting there going, I wish I was a warrior. No, every one of them's a warrior, motherfucker. Yeah. I'm just a warrior bartender and a warrior barkeep. That's the same thing. And a, <laughs> and a warrior... A drink tender. Oh yeah. shit, that's the same thing. Ale slinger. Anyway, they have different jobs and different roles, but they're all still fighters and warriors. And you see that, especially with the Sahuigan. again, yeah. right? The fact that you get to see them be... They're all equal, except these handful of special
1: ones that we'll be talking about. What's a warrior sommelier look like? Just taste this red wine or
4: I'll kill you.
1: I, I Honestly, I went, what is the most innocuous, like... Unwarrior like job I could think of, and my mind immediately went to the guy who tells people that there's oaky notes in their fucking wine. That dude's an asshole.
0: Well, I'll tell you this right now: uh, Sahuagin Somalier always attacks from port. Very nice. Yes. I thank you, thank you. Anyways, um, <laughs> my my favorite thing about the Sahuagin is that we get another proper lawful evil society here. Sure. Yeah. We don't get a lot of lawful evil in our mobs. A lot of it is true evil or like um, neutral evil or chaotic evil. We get a lot of that shit. Mm-hmm. Especially because of just... How many freaking demons are the travel
1: in mobs as yeah. well? So, Now, when it comes to lawful evil, there's something I want to get out there. Just because their society's lawful evil doesn't mean that they will murder your PCs on site.
0: The idea of being lawful evil... Gives the impression of being civilized, of there being a more, more civilized society um, or a mindset about them. Do you feel it? Like?
1: I think they legit have towns underwater.
0: I do, I do as well. Right. I don't think that being chaotic necessarily means that you don't have a civilization. You look at elves, mm-hmm. right? Like they got they've got towns. You look at some fae, they've got towns. Yeah. Right. Like chaotic doesn't mean that you don't, but you can't be lawful. You could be a lawful barbarian tribe but you still have your rules your laws your rituals yeah. your rights your your way of living and it's your society exists and is cohesive it's often xenophobic i mean yeah. that's how D works right but i think people are more quick to have a knee-jerk reaction to say that yes it's more civilized so who aren't so will not sit down and negotiate
1: i i don't think they'll sit down and negotiate um, and we have seen that they're really, really strict on not letting any other intelligent races threaten their territory. Yeah. But if you got a party of four guys going through and you need to go to the Sahawagan village to like find this one thing or go find the MacGuffin or, or do whatever, I don't see why your party can't go to the Sahawagan village. Everybody will be side-eyeing you and sizing you up and waiting for you to make a, uh, make a wrong step but I don't necessarily think they'll immediately want to murder you and now you have to kill the entire town to get your MacGuffin, right? I think they're, I, I'm kind of getting like an Old West feel for their town in my head.
0: I I disagree with you. These guys, to me, are shark people. The fact that they get blood frenzy... Yeah, okay. ...means that they are ready to be on the attack all of the time. Yeah,
1: I mean, and that, that's why I'm saying like they're side-eyeing, right? Um,
0: They're not going to barter with you. They don't barter, they raid. Yeah, I understand why you would say that. I just think there are other other things that are going to fill that niche uh, I, I underwater. Just,
1: I just have a mental image of like going to the bar underwater and like having two sahagin who are fighting burst out. One of them rips off their arm and like. 10 feet off of the f- uh, ocean floor.
0: The, the Moss Eisley Marina?
1: Yeah, right? Like, just just really, really rough and tumble and and everything else. And if you say the wrong thing, and you might not even know you're saying the wrong thing, right? You look him in the eyes for too long. It's causing a fight, I, right?
0: The, I gotta say, I, I have to disagree. The fact that they do not share a language with us means that
1: they're not designed to be able to... That's fair.
0: ...to interact with That's
1: him. fair. So... That being said, considering that they come in groups, how do you utilize that broad f- frenzy ability without getting without it getting out of control? That could easily overpower your party.
0: Remember, our basic math that we use on the podcast is when you get advantage, consider that a plus four to hit. Yeah. Which means you're likely to hit more often and they have a freaking multi-attack. That's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Multi-attack with advantage becomes real scary real quick. The moment that one guy hits, everybody becomes more effective. The more pe- the more people in the party that get hurt, the more effective the enemy becomes. That is dangerously close to a death spiral. Mm-hmm. So depending on your party makeup, but I'm thinking, you know, we're talking like first tier,
1: right? Yeah. Well, the thing is, I they are CR half on land. I would not say these guys are CR half in the water.
0: Well, they got a swim speed and you guys are moving at half speed. The majority of your party. Right? And they got a
1: fast swim speed. They yeah, got a swim feet. speed of 40 feet. They got that dark vision of 120 feet.
0: Yeah. And then you have, you know, blood frenzy. Um, and then shark telepathy out to 120 feet. Multi-attack. These things are more dangerous than they seem at first glance. Exactly. Normally when I put, uh, let's say, a level two party, I will give them five CR halves to fight mm-hmm. not in the water with these guys no it's four like this is a straight fight oh i i, I even that
1: is a bit dangerous to me
0: yeah it, it depends you look at their their life as well i'm mean, 48 plus four they're
1: hardy you are gonna hit them they're, you're gonna hit them right they're they're wearing seashells and uh n- like not much else just a right? conch
0: for for a cod piece i get it it's a cod piece they've got a cod just
1: just really making the gross noises today, huh? You got, you got to stop. That sound reminds me of something gross, gross, and it has to do with saw wagon. They have to be submerged once every four hours, or they die.
0: in In a cod,
1: well, underwater. Okay, but
0: you know, yeah, if, no. All right, if it so... lasts
1: for longer than four hours, you know, they'll need to see a doctor. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Look, Dave, Dave, Dave
0: downplayed that by saying that they need to get a little wet, but you're right; it's fully, fully submerged. submerged. Yeah. So, I have a question. Sure. And I have a question about all things aquatic. Saltwater or freshwater?
1: Um, I don't think the design gives a shit.
0: I think that you're right. But, I mean, obviously you're out in the ocean. I if, you are, if you are on a ship going from island to island and it's going to be multiple days travel, you have barrels of
1: fresh water. Are there therefore... freshwater sharks? Yeah, there's some. Okay. So, then the way I view this is there are freshwater tribes of Sawagon and saltwater tribes of Sawagon. And they're at war.
0: I'm not even sure that they. No, they're territorial. Why would they be at war? They,
1: they're not where even, the where the freshwater river meets the saltwater ocean. They are fighting over that territory. They
0: probably have a truce because they're going to attack the civilization that's there because that is prime port location. Oh, I mean, you're not wrong for yeah for the land dwellers, right? So, I would say that we there's probably not river uh so again i would be amazed if there were even lake zoo again
1: the aquatic thing you would get on in that you get grung like th- there's your aquatic humanoids let's see elves
0: still i yep. get pictures sitting in a lake but no i i don't see what these guys these are supposed to be deep water you look at the way that they have been designed with the big uh, frills and the giant spikes in their armor like, it it screams deep deep ocean
1: okay um With the submerged thing, how do you forecast this to your players? Like, what happens to them if they get four hours where they're not submerged?
0: Well, at three and a half hours, they start, you know, labor breathing. They um, start to flake. Their scales start to look really dry, and they they begin to panic. Mm -hmm. The closer it gets to it until they're gasping. Um, And, of course, you don't have a language, so you don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah. So, um, I would have a couple of them drown in air. Okay. If you take them prisoner, and you're taking them over to the... Like we'll get them on the ship and then in 12 hours we'll be back at port and we'll get them in to go talk to the king and whatnot and we're going to keep them in the decks below and nobody's dumping water on them. Right? Remember, they have to be submerged. You can't just get them wet. Yeah. Right? If nobody's like dunking their head in they a barrel. They need to be able to
1: take a breath of water. Uh, of oh water. Right? Yeah.
0: And I would say that fresh water is probably fine. For D&D purposes, it's the difference between room temperature and cold air. Okay. One of them is like really cold air. One of them is hard to breathe for long periods of time Mm -hmm. and one of them is a lot
1: easier but i'm gonna give it to you you're doing your best so okay well the base stat block aside let's start looking at our first of the uh, specialized Sahuagan. kyle is in the tomb of horrors right now breaking down the coral smasher thanks guys this is
6: kyle coming to you again from the tomb of horrors on the sword coast I was just clearing out some of our more recently deceased adventurers that seemed to be suffering from an acute case of flattened skull when I was reminded of the Sawajin Coral Smashers. These frontline shock troops from the deeps of salt marsh, specifically chosen from amongst the strongest of the Swajan, to batter at enemy defenses and to lay waste to their cities. Their strength capable of overcoming even the resistance of the water in order to swing their mighty war hammers. These are CR-1, medium, lawful evil humanoids, with 33 HP. 14 AC from their natural armor, and 30 feet of movement on land and 40 in the water. In terms of stats, they are very average across the board with their highest being strength, obviously, which sits at a 16. They've got bonus to perception rolls, 120 feet of darkvision as is common for the Swaggin and speak only Swaggin. In terms of their abilities, they've got all the regular Sawajan ones uh, with Blood Frenzy, Limited Amphibiousness, and Shark Telepathy. Uh, what sets them apart, however, is their Siege Monster ability, which allows them to do double damage to buildings and structures. And we'll come back to that in a minute. On top of that, they also have a multi-attack where they can either make two Warhammer attacks that have a plus 5 to hit, dealing 1d8 plus 3 bludgeoning damage, or one bite and one claw attack also with a plus five to hit, but this time only dealing 1d4 plus three piercing damage. Now, these are very niche monsters. I don't see them coming up in a lot of regular battles, unless maybe you have a Warhammer fetish like I do. Um, yeah, the Blood fans the ability is cool, but I think you're, better off fighting with a regular Suwajin armed with a triad. The only real difference between them and any other Suwajin is their Siege Monster ability, which can be cool, but I also think has a rather limited number of uses, Um, especially since they spend most of their time underwater. If I was gonna use them though, There is their obvious use, which would be trying to get them to break through a door or a gate, or smashing a city to rubble and all that, but they'll still only ever be of secondary importance in any encounter. Um, Most likely, I'd try to use them as a way to draw party members. Uh, Maybe so the group splits during an encounter to add a little extra zhuzh to a fight. Um, Maybe give the party a secondary objective that, while not mission critical, would give them a bonus reward. For example, maybe the party has been hired to protect a village from swadian raiders. But during the battle, the town's elder notices that Coral Smashers are targeting the village's windmill or whatever important structure they might have, and the elder pleads with the party to please save it, save it, and offering more money or an item of value if they do. Or they could be used uh, for a time-sensitive objective, like the are falling back as the party advances and... Uh, Before they do, they're trying to uh, destroy a statue of great power before it can fall into the party's hands. I mean, personally, I don't really see much use for these guys outside of highly specialized scenarios, uh, but that's just my humble opinion. So take it as you will. Um, Anyways, guys, I got to get back to lewd, I mean, autopsies. Yeah, autopsies on these adventurers. Uh, So until next time, Adam and Dan, back to you.
0: Okay, so before anything, I want to address the one thing that Kyle got wrong that most people get wrong about the Sahuagin, and that is that the standard Sahuagin does not carry a trident. They carry a spear, and that's not Kyle's fault. Even the artwork in the basic uh, Sahuagin in the Monster Manual has a spear that looks suspiciously like a crude trident. Yes. So, I had to look up what the difference is, so I'm going to break it down really quickly. Okay. Spears are simple weapons, tridents are martial. okay tridents are worth five times what a spear is worth in a shop takes more effort to build one that makes sense one gold to five gold
1: yeah a spear is a sharpened stick let's be honest can be yep yeah
0: spears weigh three pounds while tridents weigh four
1: there's more pokey bits
0: yeah uh and other than that they're identical they both do 1d6 piercing damage they can both be thrown they have the same range of 20 feet or 60 feet with disadvantage and they both have the versatile property, which lets them use a D8 as a damage die if they're wielded two-handed.
1: So, Dan, do you care?
0: No! Would you make the change for flavor's
1: sake? Yes. Yeah. You would just give I, I, them I, I, Well, I, I would give them the crude spear, like the crude trident thing that, like... That's in the artwork. Right. And um, I would... I wouldn't necessarily call it a trident. I would call it a spear. But, like... It's got three prongs. It's got three prongs. It's got multiple prongs. uh, Well, if it has two prongs,
0: it's a bident. If it has four, it's a quadrant, which drives me nuts. Quad, quad dent.
1: Quad dent, yeah. Um, Fuck. What is Aquaman's trident in... It's five. It's a quint dent. Oh, quint dent. Okay.
0: Look, I'm with you. I I would flavor it as well, but the higher up you go with any sort of goblinoid or orc stat or anything else... The more powerful they become, the better armor and weapons they tend to get. Which means that if they have legitimate tridents that are like the actual magical, made-out-of-metal Aquaman-looking yeah. fucking trident. The the Little Mermaid level of trident. If yeah. that's what we're talking about here, that's going to be your barons. Those are your, oh, your yeah. champion th- level. Th- those
1: are your boss guys.
0: Yeah, your basic guys are spears that are... Um, you know, pieces of wood that they have sharpened the roots and they're holding them upside down, right? So there's a bunch of different points. That kind of thing.
1: Back to the Coral Smasher. I think Kyle is completely correct on the one little thing where he said he'd have the Coral Smasher hang back and do damage with the regular Sahawagan engaging the players. Yes. Okay? Um, the reason why I would do this is if you see that siege monster trait like you see with the coral smashers. Yeah. Um you need to highlight that damage in some way. But let's let's be completely serious here. This is to sink ships, right? Uh, yeah, they're sinking ships that they're wiping out lighthouses. Yeah. I, they're taking out the piers so that you can't get
0: to your ships. Yeah. That's what I'm like this is not about knocking down the tavern. No, no. This uh, and and I mean it could be. It could be but I don't think it is. I no. I really do. In flood season, they're coming up those houses on stilts. They're wiping out the stilts. Right? Yeah, like no. This is about getting the structure submerged where they have
1: advantage. I could also see it being like they if they get on to the deck of the ship, breaking masts so you can't run away.
0: I think that's, that's brilliant. I think the first thing that you should realize when you are fighting Sahu again is the fact that you can't steer because the rudder's gone.
1: Yeah, I was about to say, if, if you are in a longboat style thing, um, or just higher, so you can't necessarily see the water at a time, you know, you have a couple of your oarsmen suddenly get confused because their oar is not working when they pull it out of the port. where, where it's splintered. It's, it's right? splintered, right? So, yeah. And I, it's all on one side. And now you're starting to spin in circles. Um, I, I have to say this. There, I mean, it doesn't say it specifically.
0: Their Warhammer's made of coral, right? Like, that's what we're dealing with. There's no underwater steel forges in Sahuagin society. I'd say either coral or... They're called coral smashers.
1: They're not... I I would say stone. They're they're mostly going to be out of stone and bone and, and stuff like that. Like, they got the head of a hammerhead shark tied to a stick. Really, like I, stall.
0: I would really go with coral on this just because it's more flavorful. From I just don't want it to be stone or bone because I see that everything with, is stone and bone, yeah, yeah okay. right. So, if I'm gonna do an aquatic campaign, I want it to feel moist all of the time. So, I'm gonna have the, the, the idea of coral, I also have the idea of them hitting it. As hard as they can, and then
1: all of a sudden, out of the coral, like it drops a bunch of like crabs or mussels fall off of it or something, too. And like, just see, my only thing is, like, a lot of the coral is extremely porous, it's not really necessarily hard. That's where we get a lot of sponge from. So, like, these guys out of water hitting you with this thing, they just go
0: sponge lives on the
1: coral, it isn't the coral itself. Okay, fine. Anyways, Terry, who's getting drunk in the Green Dragon Inn and he's covering the Sahuagin
3: Priestess. Alright, thanks Adam and Dan. Let's do it. Okay, I have Sahuagin Priestess. Man, I get I get all the good ones. I feel like I get all the good ones. Maybe everybody feels like that or maybe uh, maybe, maybe Adam and Dan pick them for me sometimes and maybe this time I just got what I got but Sahuagin Priestess. I'm excited about this one. I was just talking when I was recording my mailbag episode a few minutes ago um, that uh, I want to dive much more into a cleric type character uh, that's the character that i didn't get to explore as much as i would have liked to and so i want to try it in a different way and, and really delve into that class and um so then i got given this this creature of the Sahuagin priestess which just l- looks at a cleric type character in a completely different way just a, a sea dwelling deep like sea trench dwelling uh raider of the shores just bloodthirsty um and it's is able to, c- to control sharks and uh and has sahuigan warriors that just do basically anything that this person wants and you're playing it as a support role um so be, so, but to be much more of an aggressive character that's exciting i'm excited to talk about it in just a second but let's go through the stats Medium humanoid sahuagin, uh, lawful evil makes sense for me because they're, they're they're raiders but they're they're organized. You don't understand what they're saying; they only speak one language. We'll get to in a second. But they're bloodthirsty, ruthless killers um, that uh, that uh, that are organized in their in their attack. Um, so armor class 12, with natural armor, hit points is uh, 68 plus six, averages out of 33. You got a standard walking speed of 30 feet. I like that. But how about this? You got a swim speed of 40 feet, DMs when i see an enemy with a swim speed like that that's also an organized tactically minded enemy i'm fight i'm leaning into it i'm fighting them on the shores the battle map is basically going to be half waves from the shore it's going to be half beach that may even be difficult terrain in itself and I'm gonna have the battle right on that line of where the shore is coming in. Now, I might even roll a dice at the top of every round to see where the waves are, to see how much of the battle map is sand, how much of the battle map is water, and I'm using that swim speed. That sahuagin priestess and the other sahuagin to my advantage. How about that? You can take that. You can have that one for free. Okay, let's take a look at stats. Wisdom is their highest stat, which makes sense with their spellcasting ability. Uh, And then we also have an above-average charisma and strength. You're getting plus one for each of those. And then nothing too much with dexterity, con, and and intelligence. Uh, It's twelve and under for those. But there's no real dump stats. It's a it's a lesser powered character compared to what it could be you know uh, but there's no real dumb stats they're well balanced I think skills we got perception we got religion dark vision 120 feet of course yeah they live deep deep down in the ocean and uh, you know if you're if you're thinking battles with these, find a way to make that battle transition from the depths if that's where your players are up to the shore there's multi levels to this that you can do passive perception 16 languages is just Sahu again so that means that unless you have somebody who speaks Sahu again i doubt it either side does not understand what the other one is saying so they do not understand the instructions that they're given between their allies and they they don't understand necessarily whether or not the other side wants to give up or or, or what what they're feeling just remember that it's important to lean into um so let's take a look at the abilities blood frenzy fits in i think it's a good ability to use as well limited amphibiousness okay that's fine shark telepathy now it gets good the sawhugan can magically command any shark within 120 feet of her using a limited telepathy okay remember this you have a well organized relatively intelligent character that understands battle strategy and is going to use it to their advantage and you can organize sharks that means you want to put one or more on a single target. That's the best tactic to go in with. Sharks naturally might attack separate targets or whoever they're thinking is their immediate threat, but when you can organize them, you're putting them all in one. Okay, so spellcasting. The Sahugan is a 6th level spellcaster. Her spellcasting ability is Wisdom with a spell save DC of 12. That's, that means plus 4 to hit with spell attacks. She has the following cleric spells prepared. Cantrips, guidance, thaumaturgy. Uh, I like that. You know, there's are hey, thaumaturgy is always good to throw in in your in your cutscenes, DMs. Okay, when there's like uh, basically water explosions going off to announce their arrival with the horns, use thaumaturgy for that. First level spells, we got four slots. We have blast, detect magic, guiding Bolt, Okay, seems strange because of how these creatures are, but blast would be a big part of my game for this. Hey you're you're organized okay you're you're organizing your sharks to go on one on, on one target okay so you might have three sharks on one target a lower level enemy i'm just using bless i'm just gonna hold bless on there As soon as i get to a, a more dangerous enemy a little bit further in the day that's when i'm likely gonna be using whole person and i'm gonna couple that with my spiritual weapon as well which is the second second level spell and for third level you've got mass healing word and tongues do not like tongues I don't like tongues why would you give the Sahugan Priestess tongues? And now they can have in-depth conversations. It takes away the whole language issue you'd have when you come across these people. Why is it there? It's not making the game better. It's just making the game more boring. Okay, actions. I'm going off on this one. I got really excited about this one. Actions, multi-attack. The Sahugan makes two attacks. One with her bite, one with her claws. Okay, bite, we've seen it a thousand times, right? Melee weapon attack, plus three to hit, reach five feet. It's gonna be hit three for 1d4 plus one. Piercing damage, and then claws. It's the same thing, but it's slashing damage. Okay, we know how that goes. Okay, I gave away my immediate thoughts on tactics, strategies, how I would play this character, but the big one I want you guys to take home is you can get interested with those shoreline maps. Use your, use your dice to decide where the waves are coming in, where they're coming out, stick a Saur raiding party on there, half the battle maps beach, half the battle maps ocean, depending on where the waves are, you got difficult terrain in the sand, that'll be outstanding. That's what I'm taking away from that is how this uh, Saur priestess made me think. Adam, Dan, back over to you. Terry,
0: we always give you the good ones.
1: <laughs>
3: yeah, we do. I love the idea
1: of the shifting shoreline of during battle.
0: It's like on the beach. Yeah. yeah,
1: it's an amazing idea, and I'm definitely going to be using it in a campaign that I am currently running. Oh yeah, I'm I'm doing a pirate campaign, man. I'm gobbling like the, these series of episodes have come at a very fortuitous time. Like I literally gave them a boat last week after we talked about boat combat and how to staff a, a boat or a ship. Uh, I gave them a ship. Okay.
0: Yeah. I really like it too, but it's it's going to take a little bit of um, planning ahead of time. Yeah. That shifting tide and waves coming in and stuff is going to frustrate my players as well. So I I think I'm going to have the waves come in like every three rounds. There would be a larger one that kind of sweeps away a bit of the battlefield, and suddenly you're in difficult terrain for a round and shit like that. Like, mm. but I would I would hit them up ahead of time. Look. The winds are high, the waves are large and you can see that they're coming in like large waves are coming every 20 seconds or so, so that people can really get an idea of uh, of the fact that they will be fighting in this kind of surf and turf environment. Yeah. Look, during the series on mobs, whenever we've talked about languages, someone has brought up an interesting way to use the language barrier. And here's Terry again, thinking this time about how communicating between the two forces would be confusing. And, you know, yelling about goals, strategies, tactics, retreating, surrendering, healing, defending. There's so much more that is going to get lost in translation. And it really makes me think about upping the vocalizations between the monsters in all my narratives.
1: I mean, you'd almost have to. I I, I don't necessarily say you would have to as a new DM. um, But if you are trying to breathe a little bit of reality, a little bit of personification in your enemies... Right, Um, make the combats feel more real, more thought out, than having them have discourse, have language during the fight. Because let's be completely honest, yes, you're the only person who's going to be strategizing their movements as the DM, but your players are talking back and forth to each other about strategies during the combat. Why can't your monsters do it? And frankly, they
0: should be. They should be yelling and screaming in their own native language, Yeah. even if they do know common as well. They should be using their native language because that's what they tend to rely on. I would,
1: like, I would even say, like, the goblins and the um, hobgoblins and the orcs, and like, they use the speech and the talking and the screaming as combat tactics in a way. Yeah, look,
0: we see. I mean, we have Braveheart, Game of Thrones, and stuff. Mm -hmm. The shows that people just raw in a battle, and that's all that we ever get. Right? There's got to be more to it than that. Especially when you're talking with little skirmishes, we usually have one leader, mm-hmm. a couple of bodyguards, and then a shit ton of... Um, fodder. Well, Dave would call it fodder. I was going to say foot soldiers. Yeah. Or fin soldiers. Flipper soldiers? I'm going to have trouble with that this entire...
1: Yeah, fair enough.
0: Uh, I'm upset they don't have scale mail. Anyway, not the point. When Now you... I'm upset they <laughs> don't have scale mail. What the shit? Um, but the point is that when you have these different layers, this chain of command, and it's a small battle where they can be talking to each other... They should be. Mm-hmm. They absolutely 100% should be. And your guys should be trying to pay attention to what they're saying, what's going on. Hell, even my beasts have vocalizations. The dire bear roars and charges. Yeah. Then why are the goblins not saying anything?
1: The the fun thing I like to throw in there as well is with a lot of language, you see this with katakana, which is uh, one of the... With what? Th- katakana. It is one of the, the uh, three aspects of the Japanese language. So Japanese has these three aspects to it. There's the traditional form of Japanese, the ancient form of Japanese, the more modern Japanese words that are thrown in, and then katakana, which is funny enough, just taking the English word and making it sound Japanese. Um, so this, the word in Japan, in Japanese for hamburger is hamburgeru or something like that, right? Sounds like hamburger, right? Uh, this is all throughout their language. With with Western words that they've been in, that have been, been you, you would do that with some. I of these would one hundred percent do that with Goblinoid, right? Goblins don't have a word for I don't know um, cart. Uh, it's a fucking I like. Yes, they would. They, they would, but they like, wouldn't
0: have a word for chivalry,
1: right? I go like a word from outside of their culture that they would breed in, right? Like it's
0: easy to come up with ones for uh, the Sahuigan, because they wouldn't have a word for cart.
1: No, they wouldn't, right? So you're. Your uh, your Sahuagin would be screaming and yelling in their gurgling, uh, aquatic-sounding language, and then they would say a word that sounds like, in the heat of the moment, like "cart."
0: Give me an insight check.
1: Yeah, right? It's not perception because
0: you can hear them all yelling. Give me an insight. You're paying attention to the words that they are saying and trying to get their intention. Yeah, just blah, blah,
1: blah, 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 cart, blah, 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 blah.
0: Yeah, right. And I'm not going to give that to you. Yeah. Right? They will be yelling back and forth. But if you're paying attention, you may be able to pick up. Little bits and pieces. It's like when you go over to Europe and you hear, oh, I speak 15 languages. And I'm like, yeah, but they're all the same language with with different accents. Uh, Like you you, you conjugate a little
1: bit. I have gone down YouTube like tunnels on polyglots that just like run into other people and be like, do you speak Chinese? Oh yeah, you speak Chinese. Is it Mandarin or Cantonese? Well, I speak Mandarin or Cantonese. Well, that's what you're saying. But then they go, what about like, purdue or sikh or like they go you speak swahili like you're
0: sure there are people that are like i'm talking dan i'm talking about the difference between italian and french there's an overlap there
1: so you're the difference between uh dutch and uh swedish and finnish and like
0: there there are going to be these yeah. overlaps, which is gonna be how dwarves and giants can almost communicate. Mm. Right? If they if it uses the same script, that kind of gives you an idea of Kind of like what
1: Portuguese and Spanish.
0: Kind of. You're you're yeah. in the same it's different They're very rules,
1: distinctive languages. Yeah, and, and different
0: rules, but there is definitely
1: overlap. The priestess. Right, so let's, oh, go, yeah. back. let's yeah. go back All to right. the stat block here. Did you notice that it doesn't carry a weapon? Yeah, I saw that. That's uh her physical attacks are purely a bite and a claw, but this gets me thinking. When you see a monster that has spellcasting, do you give them a holy symbol, a totem, a uh, arcane focus of some kind to use with their spells, or are they just gesticulating and garbling? I would, I would always
0: give them spell components or a focus of some, some yeah. sort, a symbol or focus or whatever. Absolutely, I want them to have that. We we know for the priestess here based on um, their spell list that it's like cleric right like yeah we get that
1: they get thaumaturgy and but guidance if, if
0: it's a if you can see, if you see eldritch blast in it then I'm going to give them an arcane focus mm-hmm. right if I see that they can um, do wild shape I'm going to give them some sort of druidic focus if
1: they get vicious mockery are you giving them a guitar.
0: Uh I may give them things that's that like uh wind chimes or claves
1: just like two pieces of good solid oak that they smack together.
0: It's I'm <laughs> going to say it's probably more chanting than anything else. So they may have a couple of pieces right, of wh- yeah. or like um seashells that jingle when they shake it and they're... I would absolutely good do that cool. shit. One guy walking in with a triangle.
1: <laughs> ding 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 ding.
0: <sighs> so I'm ignoring you and I'm just going to move forward because I just want to point out I said, you know, it was cleric spells that we're dealing with here, right? Mm-hmm. There's not a whole lot of healing. I never see healing
1: in mob stats. Does that frustrate you as a DM? No. In my opinion, healing is a tool of evil guys, like big bad evil guys, or the players.
0: Oh, it's like when they have vampiric touch and they like yeah, beat right. back up again?
1: Um, if I want to frustrate the players, I will give them a potion or something uh, to the mobs to consume or a wand give, with like
0: three charges yeah, or something. But
1: these guys are balanced to this is this is kind of what you get, right? If their hit points hit 0, they're done, right? They they're not really balanced to keep each other up. Healing adds a X factor in that I I tend to avoid as a DM just because they've got enough threats going. They're not going to get enough turns and actions to get through that spell list as it is.
0: Yeah, you know what? I'm going to I'll back you on that. The idea that trolls, for example, can heal up. They get that regenerate. And a few things do get that regeneration. Like, that's noteworthy and scary when it comes up. Mm-hmm. We don't want to deal with that as players. So I I tend to keep a healer in the background. When I've got my big bad evil guy. Or a lieutenant that is not supposed to die yet. I will put a healer there. Or someone with a wand. Just in case. Yeah, Just in case that guy does not get the opportunity to escape. But I think you're right. Mobs are going to have to rely on number, not healing. Yeah, and frankly, they're built to retreat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they should go away, get a long rest in, Especially heal up, the and these then guys, come back. They've
1: got tactics. They're going to know. Hey, this isn't going our way. We need to. We need to get out of here. Yep. Right. Like
0: that just hits me with the next question: Is why would you ever see injured refugees? We got t- our city got attacked three days ago by a dragon. Our injured are in the hospital. Why you slept overnight?
1: Uh, again, that's yeah, a player that, that, thing. That, that is a whole other conversation. Uh, that, that is a common uh, thread that gets pulled on when people are looking at the inconsistencies of 5e's design. D&D in general has been like that. Honestly, you and I have said this multiple times on the podcast. I'm saying it again here. There needs to be more codified mechanics based around hit dice. Yep. And if they put more focus there, things like the long rest would make a little bit more sense. Because let's be completely honest, just because you slept doesn't mean you're at full hit points. I really like
0: the gritty r- rules where the short rest is overnight and the long rest is a week. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. I That's mean, also really freaking scary. But and, and
1: completely hampers and, and disables your spellcasters. Yeah. We're also very nice, at least I am when it comes to my table, where I allow my players, when they're spending hit dice to heal, to re-roll ones. Yeah, that's true as well. Right? Yeah. Uh, A random commoner who didn't die outright when the dragon looked at them funny, which in and of itself is a miracle. Uh, I'm amazed that they're still standing because dysentery exists. Yeah, Yeah. right? So anyways, we're going to move on. Speaking of dysentery, Tyler because no, we were just dysentery oh yeah i guess that's true um anyways tyler is in the waist uh I yeah, got it, yeah. yeah of zorhas and he's covering the sawagin champion he however we're just gonna point this out now he says sawagin everyone pronounces it differently but he pronounces it It's wrong, wrong.
4: it's
7: yeah. wrong anyway it, <laughs> you all get to suffer the way we have here's tyler Hey guys, Tyler here. Now I find myself today in the ready room in Bezorxan, in the northern Zorhas region. Now it is a little expensive here, but I'll tell you what, there are some good stories because these are all military sorts here. Now a couple of them were telling me about the Saragin that have been emerging from the coast on the border of the city. Now as I'm sure you guys are learning, or will learn, that there are lots of different kinds of these guys. But the one these guys were talking about in particular was the Saurageen Champion. They said this since commanding others and taking down others with his spear hitting them several times. These guys are not the ones you want to run into because they're not your average sea devil fighters but rather proven warriors who have fared more than a few battles and they have the title status and the stats to prove it now they're usually the lieutenants and the commanders in the Saragene army these guys are not pushovers by any means and really if we think about it they're an amped up upgraded version of the common Saragene fighter which we're gonna have a look at right here so the Saragene champion has uh, for one a higher armor class they have thicker skin have 16 as opposed to 12. Not only are they harder to hit, but guess what? Their hit points also through the roof difference 13d8 plus 13 rather than 4d8. Now their speed doesn't change really, still that 30 feet of movement and swim for 40 feet. But in their base stats, it's a little different. Their strength and their dex are both majorly increased from the original version. Their strength is high above average, and the dexterity quite decent as well. It's above average. Now, the constitution, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma don't change really, though. These guys haven't been learning about what's around them. They've, they are warriors. Proven warriors who have focused on their strength and their ability to move in combat. Their skills... Again, perception stays the same, the senses still have that dark vision, and the languages still sour game. However, instead of being just a half CR challenge rating, these guys are a challenge rating of three. For good reason, too. You've seen the hit points. Now they have the same kind of blood frenzy ability that we've already looked at, this idea that if the creature doesn't have all its hit points it is going to have an advantage in all melee attacks it's gonna see the blood but also it's limited amphibiousness as well as the shark telepathy which we already know about now the actions it's similar still they have a bite a claw and a spear however these guys get three attacks and they can take all three attacks with their spear if they have it or one attack with its bite, and then two with its claws. This may not seem like too much, but remember, these guys have a high strength attribute now, meaning they get a plus three. So it's going to be, on that spear, a 1d8 plus three, not just a plus one. And the thing is, that does add up when it's three times it's hitting you, possibly. But that's not the true thing that's scary about these guys, if you're wanting to face one. See, low-level parties might have a bit of trouble with this guy because of his hit points and his armor class. He may not necessarily hit too hard, but he's a pile of hit points. But here's the thing, he's a lieutenant. Now, unless you're running a stealth op, a mission to take him out or get an item that he has, you guys are going to be facing more than just him. Now, he might be the head of the battle with the horn in his hand, summoning the army of Saragin from the depths of the ocean. Or he might be the guy behind the army using his experience to command everyone else. Now this, as I said, this guy might have something that you need. Maybe he stole something from you that you need for your campaign. But in order to get to him, you're going to have to go through several others first. Or might be with him. All I can say is best of luck to you. Anyways, they got me... Playing here in a moment in order to pay for my lodging and food. Did I mention it's expensive here? Anyways, it's a good time for me to test out my bone xylophone. Now, if you guys want to reach me, you can find me on Instagram at Melodica's Music. Now, I'll talk to you guys next time.
0: Okay, so he does raise a good point that we've hinted at in previous mob episodes, and that's the idea that the mid-level mob members almost never come alone. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. It's a CR3, but it's really meant to be standing shoulder to shoulder with two other command types while Coral Smashers break the ship down and standard Sahuagin are, you know, running around causing chaos and murdering crew members. And in the, in the heat of battle with that many bodies, this kind of creature is likely going to end up facing off against one or two of your party members, not the whole group. Mm -hmm. And even at level four or five, that's going to hurt running into a CR3 creature like this. His hit points alone dwarf what a single player character is going to be able to bring to the table. And that's scary. These guys, yeah. again, and then you put them
1: in water. It's scary. Yeah. Um, like I said, it looks like a lot of these CRs are balanced for them to be on land. Plan for that encounter to go poorly. So one of the interesting things about the champion specifically And this seems to be a standard detail in a lot of the warrior-centric mobs, is the idea that they have stepped up and earned their title and rank through the acts of daring and conquest. Yeah, sure. Okay? They're the heroes of their societies. I'd like to see that reflected in the stats with a command-type feature, Uh, especially considering that you can't understand their language or hear... Yeah, you're not getting the flavor that they're leaders, that they're idols, and they should be. Yeah. You as a DM can get this point across, though, by taking the time to describe how the others react to what the champion is doing in combat. They may wait for his signal or retreat when he goes down or defend him if he's in trouble or um, mimic his actions in combat. Like, there's a bunch of things you could do with with these guys. These kind of interactions among the hordes are definitely worth paying attention to if you want to breathe a little bit more of the nuance in the game above the them talking to each other um, as the fight goes on.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that we're really good about when we do our social encounters in a tavern or in a general store or even in the freaking royal chambers, mm-hmm. right? It seems to get left by the wayside the moment you say roll initiative. Yeah. And it shouldn't. There should be a social aspect to
1: combat. In a big way. uh, Okay. Terry tends to harp on this, but he's not sitting with us right now. So This is one of the things that bothers me about some tables I've played at. And some of the guys who have been part of these tables listen to the podcast. So I'm sorry for putting you on blast on the internet. There has been, and I've seen this at the tables, the habit of some veteran players who I know what my first, second, third, fourth, and fifth turn are going to be. Right? Here, Like I see the battlefield in front of me. I see whatever, what's going on. I know what my options are. So when it's not my turn, I'm not actively paying attention to what's going on. Friends, be a better player than that. You have to actively pay attention to what everybody in the party is doing. Just by doing that alone, you can increase the amount of involvement during combat with the rest of the player which is just going to result in you having a better time with this game and dungeon masters uh, some of the onus is on you for that yes i agree too
0: because you need to be showing them that there can be interactions during combat yes i never liked the idea of the fact that you don't get to shout back and forth like it's not your turn you can't say that
1: yeah I mean, what we have done in the past, like you could use a reaction to respond to the thing.
0: I always give people a quote unquote interaction, which is a really loose idea of, man, how much can you say within six seconds? Yeah. If you can say, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely you can still say something else later on someone else's turn. Mm -hmm. Who has the key? I do, right? But if you monologue for six seconds, you go to the left. That guy goes to the right over there, and I'm going to go barrel roll over it. If you start defending your dissertation on your
1: turn, I mean,
0: At some point, I'm going to say, look, that's more than six seconds, save it for the next round, Yeah. right? And then I'm just going to let combat play out, and everyone else will get to react and stuff as well. But there needs to be conversation. If you have players at your table that are tuning out, they may be tuning out because they think that nothing important is happening well there's a bunch of important shit that's happening besides just trading
1: hit points and if they don't know that that's on the dm I, i'm i'm not going to put pure, all of that purely on the dm i think a
0: 90% of the time it is the dm not breathing that nuance in life Th- it's also on the other
1: players for letting that happen right like uh if three of the four players at the table are breathing in the nuance and that one guy's not then that one guy needs to smarten his ass up
0: sure right like, yeah I'll, I'll hit you with that but i will hold the onus on myself when i'm dming if other people are not actively engaged yeah i, I get it if it's a one shot if you're doing it online if you're just sitting at a table or you go down to the and this, comic like- book store or whatever fine that's that's on you it's your onus I play at a table where we play 10 hour you know, yeah. sessions every week and everybody's put
1: their phone in the bowl in the front door.
2: Right.
0: Yeah. So if you're not engaged, that's on me. I should know you and your character well
1: enough. Yeah. So and, and this is incredibly hard to do in the age of playing online where there's delay through microphones or people's quality isn't great or it's too good and picking up uh feedback from other like there's so many things that can make this distracting i myself have been called up for playing world of warcraft while also playing Dungeons and dragons i was an asshole i've apologized for but that please tell me you weren't dming uh no i wasn't oh thank god um but i was about to slap you uh me and one of the other players were playing wow and like just burned the f- like the second the dm found it like he he hasn't dm since and like We've apologized and, like, I feel authentically fucking terrible about it. You are one of those players sometimes. Yes. You also
0: play enough Dungeons & Dragons that by your 15th hour this week of research and editing and uh, prep work for the podcast, plus the three weekly sessions and the one-offs, and (laughs) you're just like, you know what? Yeah. You know what? I am also going to just fucking jerk it right now. No one can see me. Uh,
1: Haven't crossed that line yet, and I won't. However, Brad... Sp- Speaking man. of jerks. Now, he is talking specifically about the Sawagan, their favorite pets, their favorite allies, the most common of their allies, sharks.
5: Thanks, guys. So when Adam and Dan asked me to talk about uh, Sahuagin this week, it reminded me of a conversation I had with some fishermen a couple weeks ago. Uh, so we've covered the fact that Sahuagin worshipped the shark god, Sikola. Uh, now, since we were talking about the shark god, I figured it was only fair to talk about the animal companions that are known to accompany Sahuagin, and those will be sharks. We have four different varieties of sharks that we're going to cover today, and we're going to start with the weakest, work our way up, and then we will actually focus on a special kind of shark that is specific to the Sahuagin and is trained by them. So let's jump into it. Let's start with our smallest shark first, the reef shark. So the reef shark are generally 6 to 10 feet long at their biggest, uh, and they tend to hunt in small packs. So you're going to see a few of these at a given time. So they are only a CR of one half, but that being said, at a CR of one half, you're going to be facing, you know, 3 to 4 of these, I would suspect. So you're looking at a CR 2 encounter, uh, so make sure we prepare for that. Reef sharks come with an AC of 12 and have 48 plus four hit points which is about 22 and they have a swim speed of 40 feet they've got a decent strength they got a decent x not quite as much they're more strength, strong than dexterous uh constitution is on par with their decks they have no intellect they're not intelligent creatures uh wisdom is average they are hunting animals so they're gonna have some wisdom um and they have effectively no charisma I mean, they are beasts. Beasts don't tend to get charisma. Um, As far as skills go, they have a perception of plus two. They've got blindsight of up to 30 feet. So not dark vision, but actual blindsight. So being that they hunt in small packs, they come with pack tactics and they have, uh, which is just like all other pack tactics, right? If there's an uh, ally within five feet of an opponent they are attacking, they roll advantage. Uh, They come with water breathing. They cannot breathe outside of water, but obviously they can breathe underwater. And for attacks, they have one bite attack that hits at a plus four with the chance to do 1d8 plus two damage. So piercing damage. So that's about six on average. Let's step up to their bigger brother, the hunter shark. Hunter sharks are a little bigger, about 15 to 20 feet long. So about double the size of the reef sharks. They, however, tend to prefer a little deeper water and tend to hunt alone. Uh, That said, where you see one Hunter Shark, chances are there's going to be some more in the area, so keep your eyes peeled. They may not have a friend right with them, but there are going to be more nearby. Uh, They, just like the Reef Shark, have an AC of 12, but they're a little beefier at 60, 10 plus 12 hit points, so an average of 45, and the same swim speed of 40 feet. That said, their strength is a little bit higher than the Reef Shark. They actually have very good strength dexterity however is the same constitution is a little bit better than reef shark as well uh, int again is nothing wisdom is the same uh, it's completely average beast and charisma is tanked uh, also again skilled with perception and have the 30 foot blind sight uh but yeah again they check in at a cr2 So about the same as fighting four uh reef sharks that said action economy you might actually get a little more power out of four reef sharks than one hunter shark but the damage put out by a Hunter shark is nothing to laugh at. So, like Sahuigan, they come with fr- Blood Frenzy. So as it's been discussed already, if the, opponent, or if the enemy they're attacking is not at full hit points, they uh, get to roll with advantage on every single attack, and that is going to be brutal. They also have water breathing, just like all other sharks, again, can't breathe on land, but they can breathe in the water. Uh, for an attack, they have plus six to their attack, so a little bit better than the reef sharks. And they do two D8 plus four hit points. So an average is 13 hit points per bite, which is nothing to scoff at. Let's move on to the big daddy of the sharks, the giant shark. I and mean, they kind of come up with a better name than just giant shark, but all right. Uh, so giant sharks, they are going up to 30 feet long. So we're looking at another 10 feet on top of the hunter sharks. And they are found deep, deep ocean. So these guys are even deeper than the hunter sharks. Uh, These things are fearless, bloodthirsty attackers. And anything that crosses its path, it will attack. That includes small ships um, or even whales. So these guys will feed on anything that they can get their teeth into. They have an AC of 13. So just slightly better than the other sharks. But they are beefy, beefy creatures with 11d12 plus 55 hip points average of 126 not only that they move fast they are they move 50 feet per turn Uh, they are skilled in perception and again they've got blind sight but this time up to 60 feet so 30 feet beyond their smaller brethren Uh, these guys clock in as challenge rating of five so not to be trifled with they have blood frenzy Uh, again if you aren't at full hit points they're rolling with advantage against you and with plus nine to hit on their bite attack That's going to do some damage. Uh, That said, again, all these sharks, they don't have any multi-attack. It's one single attack. But these guys, they're by attack plus nine to hit. And they're going to do 3d10 plus six for an average of 22 piercing damage per bite. So do not let these guys sink their teeth into you or you will be losing chunks and arms and pieces. All right. So we have covered your basic shark. But we're going to talk about a special shark that these uh, sailors were talking to me about the other day. The fisherman. So they were telling me about the shell shark. Shell shark is really interesting. So they're actually uh, sharks that are effectively in service to the Sahuagin, specifically the priestesses of Sokola. So they serve as messengers and guardians of these priestesses. So during a special ritual, they will be blessed by the priestesses. And at that point, they're going to put plates of shell and coral permanently affixed to their bodies. So they're going to have a beefed up AC up to 18 versus the 13 of the giant shark or the 12 of the other two sharks so these guys are going to be a much harder to hit due to that defense uh they are going to have 5d8 plus 10 hit points so they're not especially beefy in comparison i should say these guys check in at a cr of two so they're going to be about on par with the hunter shark as far as challenge but with a few extra quirks in them they're going to have a little bit fewer hit points to make up that So, we're looking at Strength, that's decent, it's actually on par with the Reef Shark. Dexterity on par with the Reef Shark. Constitution on par with the Reef Shark. There's slightly more Intelligence, which is interesting. Uh, It's still terrible Intelligence, but better than the other sharks. Uh, Wisdom is going to be average, and Charisma is actually quite a bit higher than the other sharks, which is interesting to know as well. Still not great, less than your average human, but still decent. They're actually going to have advantage on strength saving throws, which none of the other sharks have, and they're proficient in athletics, which is really interesting. Uh, They do come with dark vision up to 120 feet, so they do not have blind sense like the other sharks do, which is really interesting, but they do have dark vision for long range. They have the Blood Frenzy trait just like the other sharks, water breathing like the other sharks, but interestingly, due to the metal, uh, the coral plates and the shell plates that are refixed to their body uh, and the spells that are used to do that work, they come with magic resistance, which is really interesting. So they have saving throws against all spells and magical effects. These guys also do get a multi-attack. They're the only shark that gets a multi-attack and they're able to make two bite attacks at plus four per attack dealing 2d10 plus 2 damage for an average of 13 damage per piece, per attack that's piercing damage. So let's cover sharks a little bit. These guys are going to make a really interesting uh, addition to any sort of Sahuggin combat. Given the fact that the Sahuggin have an affinity to talking to sharks and the ability to control them, uh this is a really interesting addition. I really like the flavor of it. I like the fact that you can have these guys serving as bodyguards, especially for the priestesses of Sokola. Uh, there's no reason you wouldn't have sharks surrounding them and acting as bodyguards. Uh, sh- the sharks themselves, I think, are really interesting creatures. Nice way to just toss a random encounter as well in sor- any sort of sea campaign. But uh, yeah, they're, I mean, they're sharks. They're bloodthirsty, they're hunters, they're vicious, they're big, they're scary. We have a whole week dedicated them to them here on Earth. There's no reason that wouldn't be the same. In whatever world that you're doing, these things are, uh, deserve our respect and fear and are not to be messed with unless you come prepared. So if you see one in the water, run or be prepared for a fight that's not going to go down easily. Anyways, I look forward to hearing from you guys. You can reach out to me at Clueless Game Master on Instagram or on the subreddit. And that's about all I have to say for this week. Back to you, Adam and Dan.
0: So just to summarize, because that was a lot. To yes, yes, it was. Reef sharks are medium-sized and get pack tactics. Okay. Hunter sharks are large-sized, and giant sharks are huge-sized, and they both get blood frenzy. That tracks. And, of course, giant sharks have increased speed and do a lot more damage, and they've got you know higher AC and all that stuff. And are generally terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. The, Can I tell you
1: I have a problem with sharks?
0: Yeah, me too. I can't do shark week. No. Um, shell sharks are back down at medium-sized, and they have blood frenzy. But they also had a big AC, magic
1: resistance, and multi-attack.
0: So what's your favorite? Giant Sharks. Yeah?
1: Yeah. Honestly, man, like, nothing beats the fear of the Great White, right? Like, I only saw Jaws. This is going to make you upset. I only saw Jaws for the first time, I want to say, three months ago. Holy shit, really? Yeah. Because I don't like Sharks. And um, my first interaction with the whole Jaws fucking world... Was my family went to Disneyland and oh went my to God. Universal Studios yeah. and we took the tour and the the fucking shark jumped at us and I'm like hard fucking no I'm done nope no I was no.
0: directly beside it and I so it, was I and everyone was looking at me and I'm like why is everyone looking at me and I turned around and there's just this mouth that's open I have been
1: ter- I was I want to say like six I've been terrified since yeah right um so I I and everyone's always like oh it's a masterpiece I'm like it's a fucking shark movie like no Dan but but. Yeah, I was wrong. It's a good fucking movie. It is. It is potentially one of my favorite movies. What is your favorite movie? Because I, I also watched my favorite movie last week, which is The Boondock Saints. But that's your favorite movie, my, like a uh, heads and shoulders above the rest. Nothing even comes close.
0: It depends on my mood. I would I would say honestly that uh, if you were to really press me about what my favorite movie is. And I'm not talking quality, like specifically, like my personal favorite. Uh, yeah, but I could sit down and watch it at any time.
1: Well, the thing is, you and I also we we watch movies for one of two reasons, sometimes both at the same. Sorry time. for the tangent, but we're doing this. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Adam and I are massive movie fans and, yeah. and like files. but like we watch movies not just for the entertainment value, but we actually watch because both of us have been in the entertainment industry. Both of us understand um the technical side of movies and we watch it with that in mind we're, we're watching the you know what the lighting is like with that in mind right like you and i have sat down to watch horror movies and went how could and had a discussion afterwards of how what could he have done differently to add intensity to that scene and we're like oh you know add this color palette or add this lighting, yeah. right like we've had those but discussions that,
0: honestly i legitimately believe that i enjoy rest of development more because of the way that it was filmed. Mm-hmm. I yeah. like there will just be some people that will get all of the jokes, but not enjoy the subtle nuances.
1: I of, can't stand The Office because of how it is filmed. Yeah, I'm the same way. I I
0: just don't like The Office. Yeah. The American Office is what we're talking about. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, no, my favorite movies uh, at any given point, I would have to say <sighs> Dead Poet Society. Jaws oh. is fucking up there. Um, Dead Ar- Poet
1: Society is a good fucking pick. Yeah,
0: Arrival. Hit every note for me. Really, I felt like they made the movie specifically for me.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, I could, I could see that. Yeah, I was like every second of that film had me drawn in. Um, you liked it so much, you like came over to my house and I'm like, have you seen this yet? If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. We're seeing it now.
0: I saw, I saw Rival four times in theaters. Yeah. and the last three times I did it by myself because I just needed to breathe that in again. Yeah, um, where the wild things are, like hit me at a deep personal level really oh yeah like that I, I grew up on that and that the idea of like the, the losing the childhood innocence and whatnot and, mm-hmm. i mean i i'm a sucker i want to i want to feel shitty in my movies i do i want the big emotional punch and i've just listed three if you want dan you have young children do not watch bridge to terabithia with them no, no i know that you know that also don't watch a monster calls yeah it looks like it's going to be another fun little narnia romp uh, and it isn't, it is a good long hard look at the guilt that a child feels when their single parent is dying of cancer and how they, they create a monster in their brain, which is the guilt in order to be able to cope. I did not realize that when I took a kid to go see that oh. at the age of 12 oh. and we, we went in for a fun little Narnia, no, holy shit, not a dry eye. Either. I ugly cried in that movie like it was
1: i only cry during dead poet society so i mean
0: yeah yeah but look what's my favorite movie something in that realm i mean i can't go eight months without watching the green mile yeah okay um that being said uh godzilla versus kong dan i haven't seen it yet (laughs) it is not a good movie really oh my god it is not a good movie i is it a good godzilla movie though I have zero tolerance for movies so bad, they're good. The Sharknado level of shit and Croczilla and all that. Not like, no, I don't give a fuck about that.
1: Yeah, I've I, tried to sit down with, uh, like, to get you to watch Sharknado once and you just like, no, hard no.
0: No, I'm I'm not going to do that. However, Godzilla vs. Gun. They, the abuse of science fiction, I don't think the writers had ever seen a, they failed high school science. At one point, they quote unquote reverse gravity. What? which Which just means they fall faster. Don't think about it. Just do it. It is so fucking bad. But my God is the monster fights fun. Like I had, I had a blast watching the movie. I watched it with Dave and we were sitting there looking at each other the whole time. You're like, the fuck are they? Whenever there's someone flapping their fucking gums on screen, I'm like, Oh my God, what is this? And then a monster comes up and like, yes. And then also fucking 11 from stranger things is in it for literally no reason whatsoever. And I hate her so much. Anyway, moving forward. All right. So I don't know what we're talking about. Uh, sharks yeah which so, one was our favorite so yeah you said the great white yeah you said the giant shark i'm gonna go with the uh shell shark the shell shark just because it is going to give you something that you haven't seen before it is cool yeah. it is a unique monstrosity which i really appreciate
1: cool do you have any ideas of when you'd use each shark
0: well reef sharks um
1: when you're near the reef
0: honestly shallow waters for reef sharks yeah because they're medium size i want them to come right up to the shore yeah, okay. Um I like hunter sharks for doing exactly what they're what it says in their name. Hunt them down. Yep. Um giant sharks are bosses. I'm not going to have a school of giant sharks. There's going to be the one that the Sahuagan Baron yeah. right, releases on the party. So um when I drop a huge creature on the battlefield, I want it to be goddamn scary.
1: Well, the thing is, the giant shark is huge and the Sahouagan Baron is Large. Large. Yeah. So, so like it, mount. It, yeah, it tracks, right? Anyways, so we are going to move on to uh, Jeff, who is in Barovia. Um, and he is going to be going over the Hatchling Swarm.
8: Hey, fellas. Against the advice of Madame Ava, I went to Ravenloft Castle in search of an ally in this hellscape. I didn't manage to find Megan, but I did meet this really creepy elf, named Rahadin. I don't think he has any kind of a sense of humor to him. He just looked at me like I was the crazy person, and not him. The guy has his own theme music that follows him around. I didn't even know that was a thing you could have. Anyway, he said no one was home, so I went back to the Vistani camp. I think she was just trying to pacify my boredom, but Ava told me about these really vicious fish folk, or rather, they're young. I'll never look at the beach the same way again, I'll tell you, The Sahuigan hatchling swarm has a fun and unique bit of flavor written in the flavor text. Other Sahuigan avoid the swarms. The individual members of the swarm devour each other until only the strong survive to grow to adulthood. Think piranha meet highlander. As someone that worked in pet stores for over a decade and has kept tropical fish for 18 years, including a lot of aggressive ones, I can attest that Wizards has borrowed this straight from nature. There are real animals that do this, and I love it. The Suhuugan Hatchling Swarm is a large swarm of tiny beasts, and they are chaotic evil in their alignment. Their armor class is 14, and their hit points average at 52, which comes from 8d10 plus 8. They do not have a walking speed, but their swim speed is the same 40 feet that an adult Suhuugan has. Their strength is slightly below average. Their dex is pretty high. Their constitution is slightly above average. Their intelligence and charisma are both particularly bad. Their wisdom is average. They have resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage, full stop. Not just from non-magical weapons. They have a bunch of condition immunities, which all seem to be owing to this being a swarm and not individual creatures. These conditions are Charmed, Frightened, Grappled, Paralyzed, Petrified, Prone, Restrained, and Stunned. They have 120 feet of dark vision and 10 for a passive perception score. They don't speak a language, they have a challenge rating of 3. They do have some fun traits, uh, one of which is the same as the regular Sahuagin, which is the Blood Frenzy. Their next is called Seething, and Once they enter the fray, they deal themselves damage every turn, even if they didn't make an attack. The damage ignores their resistance, and it can't kill them. And this is referring back to the members of the swarm fighting each other as the weaker members are killed off. So that's 10 slashing damage to itself at the end of each of its turns, regardless of whether it did anything. The swarm, since it has, you know, a fun bit of its attack in a minute, they can occupy another creature's space and vice versa, can move through any opening large enough for Tiny. This is swarm stuff with smaller creatures. Uh, It can't be healed. It can only breathe underwater, which is different from the regular Sahuagin, which can spend some time above the surface. And they have one action. Their action is a bite. They have plus six to hit and a reach of zero feet one creature in their space. They're a large creature, so this means two by two on your battle map or your roll 20 grid, but it means that they have to be overlapping the space of the creature they're attacking. They have to be on top of you. You are in the swarm when they bite. They can't reach outside their space. Again, plus six to hit. Their hit does an average of 14 piercing damage or seven if the, da- if the swarm is half of its hit points or fewer. So as the swarm eats itself, it hits less. You know, either or less of these creatures to bite, so the bites don't hurt as bad. Uh, as far as how to use them, I think these guys would be a fun way to rapidly change the flavor of an underwater encounter. If your group is fighting a bunch of suhugan, say over a coral reef, trading blow for blow, Suddenly, the Sahuagans start backing off and looking up current nervously. A swarm or several swarms of smaller, juvenile versions of the Sahuagans sweep in from the side and start attacking everything in sight, including themselves and the other Sahuagans. Your enemies, they're not sticking around. They bail and they start running as the swarm keeps biting at you. If there's more than one swarm, you can have one of them even go after the running Sahugan. And this can really change the tone from this is a regular battle with things that stand and fight you to holy shit, this thing's attacking everything, including me and the other guy. Anyway, that's all I've got for you guys this week. I swear I'll die of boredom if I don't get out of here soon. I'm really getting bored of wine and campfire stories. You can find me on Instagram at thezombieknight at the.zombie.knight, K-N-I-G-H-T. Until next time,
1: So, these tiny beasts are so vicious that even fully grown sahawagan avoid them. Yeah. They obviously stay together in a swarm for hunting purposes and bloodlust, as opposed to using safety in numbers. I think that justifies the fact that they're the only chaotic evil Sahuagin.
0: Yeah, I'll buy that. They're young, they're vicious. It's, you know at the beginning of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 when Groot is just running around attacking at yeah. little things? Like, that's what I picture these guys doing, only actually terrifying and vicious. Also, they look a little bit like the like aquatic
1: gremlins in my head. Um, so the Aquaman movie, the and, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. In Aquaman, uh, in Aquaman, the the like creatures from the deep. I'm that, pretty sure Pepperina
0: calls it Aquaman. Aquaman. <laughs> so, okay, what do you picture as far as the numbers go in this? How many begin and how many survive? Um. When you got the swarm,
1: right? The yeah. actual swarm enters the battlefield. Well, the swarm itself is large. So I'm sitting here going, if it's a swarm of tiny creatures and it's large, there's like twenty of them in there. You think that's it? Twenty to twenty-five Re- in a large space in a you know ten by ten square. Twenty little creatures, yeah, man, that's a lot. Remember, and they're remember, breathing over each other.
0: Remember, tiny is everything from like small dog or large cat
1: all the all way, the way down, down to like. Like I'm not saying these here. guys are tadpoles. Like you could, you see the sawwag and baron, they could get up to large size. These things are going to be about the size individually as a house cat. It's interesting that you say that because when I look at the at the size difference, if I look at the multiplier
0: of, you know, row the tiny fish that come out of of you know like salmon and mm-hmm. eggs, and whatnot, yeah. when you look at the fry there. And you look at how big some of these oceanic salmon can get. Yeah, right. These West Coast massive salmon. Yeah. When you look at how big, how big the like the tiny hatchling tuna are, and you look at how big a fucking tuna is, right? It's a fucking tuna, bro. Have you seen that? No. Oh my god, that is the best. All right. Okay, I'm going to uh, I'm gonna put a link in the show notes for the funniest YouTube video I have ever seen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fucking
1: tuna, bro. <laughs> Jesus, that's going to be stuck in my head. Yeah. I can't stop laughing now. All right. <laughs> okay, well, let, you know what? Let's talk about the eggs for a second. No,
0: hold, hold on. I, I think that you could justify having them be these guys be real small
1: but ha- and have like
0: 100 of them. You could have them be, what, three inches long and have them be like... A solid, like, the, like there's a huge fast growth to them. We don't really have much in the way of what a lifespan looks like for these guys. How no. quickly they hit maturity. No. What their growth rate is. When they become
1: warriors and all that. What their rites of passage are. Um, uh, the closest thing we have is this idea of the Merlanti. Which, which, like, comes out with sea elf-like features. So, like, it makes me think that they are being born in at least relatively humanoid baby size, right? Not necessarily tadpole size, right? You think so? <laughs> yeah. Alright, uh, well let's talk about eggs for a second then. Alright. Okay, well they're called hatchlings, which implies that um they aren't live births like a litter of puppies. So they've gotta be eggs. Yep. Then how do they swarm if they don't all hatch at the same time? Okay, yeah. This has been bothering me for a little while. I yeah. don't
0: understand the hatchling swarm on this is
1: there a period of calm as they learn to blink and swim while the others hatch or do you think there are so many thousands of eggs that this swarm itself is already the cream of the crop in my opinion um there are thousands of eggs
0: so those eggs have to be small if we've got the so females that are laying them by the like dozen
1: uh
0: you keep in mind that human babies are so early in their life cycle because they have such huge freaking heads. And we we have a weird gestation period as humans yeah. to, to accommodate our brain size. But you look at how aquatic eggs are laid.
1: Yeah, no, I'm with you. But at the same time, it says explicitly that Sahawagan are used to the mutation. They are more flexible in that regard. I just see like a... um. Sahawagan getting ready to lay the eggs is just distended and huge and then just empties them. If you watch a video of a seahorse just, like, emptying its young... How good do you think that feels? Oh, like the best fart. You know the farts where you feel empty afterwards? No. <laughs> My God, Dan, what is wrong with your... Health? I have a high-protein, high-fat uh, diet. They're... they're there's a lot. It's a lot.
0: Like, no, but when, like, as, as a male, I can only think about voiding in one way. And,
1: like, that can't be. I, I, I think it feels wonderful. I think it's just like, oh, it's like you're carrying around a heavy backpack all day and you put down that backpack for the first time.
0: I just imagine that. You, you know, were a Boy Scout. Remember when you used to take off your uh, pack? My, my as, fucking boots. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's that level of relief.
0: I, I could. Sure. I'll, I'll buy that. <laughs> Honestly, I'm like, who do I know that's had babies? I wanna ask them now. If you were to if you were to avoid twelve thousand eggs, how would that feel? I'm not sure I can ask someone that and look them in the eye.
1: I can. I bet you can. Go ask your wife. <laughs> if I don't if you don't hear from me in an hour, <laughs> come find me. I'll um. be in several pieces at the bottom of a well somewhere.
0: No, I, I really do think that it, if there's gonna be that many of them, they've gotta be small, right? And fish eggs don't really grow once they've been laid.
1: No, I mean you're you're right. Do you think maybe that there is another step between egg and swarm? I like that's what I like. Like they're called hatchlings, which implies that this is fairly soon after hatching. But they like how big are maybe maybe the Sawwagon are? They have spawning pits. No, 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 each, no, no, each...
0: no. I I got it. I got I figured okay. it out. You remember how creepy and gross that scene in Alien was when the one egg opens up and the face burster comes yeah. out? Right, And that was creepy and gross and nasty But now I'm thinking about gremlins When all of the eggs hatched at once And you came and you found just that sea of hatched eggs Yes I think that it would be a really cool Gross and creepy body horror moment To be swimming through This underwater channel for example And there are all of these eggs And all of a sudden at once Every one of them uh, blooms and opens And like 25 hatchling swarms are 50 feet beneath
1: you. Oh, you're swimming through some coral and you're seeing these weird bulbous shapes in the coral as you're swimming yeah. along. You don't even know they're eggs.
0: No, and they just start to pop, 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 like
1: popcorn. Yeah.
0: Right, like micro-popcorn where it's one or two and, and then all and of a sudden underwater, warm, warm, it's and It's just warm. like
1: this this resonance, like boof. Noise. Oh, and it gets it gets misty. You gotta swim. Yeah, like, and it's like this it. this like grayish yellow there we go. haze. Oh, and, yeah. And in,
0: and inside this haze is a bunch of these hatchlings, which will kind of coalesce. Each egg
1: could have three or four different hatchlings in it.
0: Well, yeah, they've got weird little amniotic sacs that they're yeah. in. But once they hatch, they're they, they have access to each other. Yeah. yeah right.
1: Okay. I'm, I'm I, I like it.
0: All right. So. We took a dark turn there. Anyway, um, back to the stat block. Just for clarity's sake, the wording of the ability Seething is that it deals 10 slashing damage to itself at the end of its turn if it does not make an attack on that turn. So Jeff was saying that, that it happens even if they make an attack and stuff yeah. like it always happens. It doesn't. This is the same thing as a Barbarian Rage. You know, keep attacking or get weaker. Mm-hmm. Right? So... It's really important to know that these things are going to try to move as a group to attack others. And when there's nothing else to attack, that
1: bloodlust takes them.
0: Yeah. And they they will begin to hurt themselves. I
1: I think this is one of the reasons why you have uh, your Sahuagin tribes, I don't think, are necessarily teeming with life. Right? There's so few of them. Because the initial hatching happens with these, and there's hundreds of them, but they just consume each other, and that hundreds becomes ten. Yeah. Right? So anyways, we are going to move on to the one greatest person in this podcast, in my opinion, only because she has threatened me recently. Megan, who is in Castle Ravenloft. And today she is covering the Warlock of Ukatoa.
2: Hey guys, it's Megan here, as always, from Castle Ravenloft. I know what you're all wondering... And we have recently been let back inside after doug did come to an agreement with the Rat clan so i am much happier and much warmer now but of course we are shifting gears into talking about something completely different um but let's chat uh, leviathan warlocks of the sea so to be more specific we're talking of course of the suhuigan warlock ukatoa so a bit of history here uh Uk'otoa is actually the leviathan god That does prey on humanoids who dare to cross over its seas, uh, more specifically the Lucidian Ocean. So, of course, within the ocean there are probably going to be small pockets of Tsuhuigan communities. And of course the bravest or like the weirdest of those groups kind of hear the call of of their god, Uk'atoa, within their dreams or within their mind. Kind of encouraging them to take up his power and carry out, of course, his murderous will. So this special sehuigan begin to act out the Leviathan God's will with the special boons and magic, of course, that they get to, uh, you know, any other warlock in the world would get special like gifts from its god, which of course we'll get into in a little bit. But of course carrying out the will is to murder and destroy anyone who dares to kind of cross over its waters, you know, that belong to them. So over time, these kind of special warlocks do develop their own following within their groupings. Um, due to, of course, their stronger displays of power. However, over time, it is thought that they actually become complete and total vessels for Uktoa, like causing them to eventually become husks of themselves and more like puppets to be used. Um, so it, I feel like it's not necessarily a gracious and lovely life to live uh, being one of these warlocks of this god. But, uh, you know, I digress. Uh, but let's get into some stats here. Um, they are medium humanoid. Uh, and of course neutral evil they are warlocks so I feel like they will play a little bit more on the evil side despite the amount of conversations we of course had one-on-one about evil versus good warlocks they do have an armor class of 14 it's a natural armor they are um, how do I say like lizard folk kind of so they might have a tougher skin uh, hit points are pretty solid 22 hit points which or 5d8 Speed of 30 feet, but they do also have a swim speed of 40 feet, which I feel absolutely checks out if they're going to be animals of the sea. When it comes into their basic stats, they do have a strength of plus 2, dex of 0, con of 0. Their intelligence is negative 1, wisdom is negative 1, and their charisma is plus 3. So I do like how they look like they are built to be a strong character, then all of a sudden their charisma is through the roof, which I think is... um, Again, I know we've had conversations about charisma-based magical characters. I love them. I think it's great. So, of course, their skills are in Arcana, so plus one, and persuasion plus five, which I think is a really, really neat trope, um, and the fact that I feel like creatures of the sea have a tendency to want to lure you into places, so the fact that their persuasion is really high, I think, kind of checks out and is actually really cool. For senses, they do have dark vision for up to 120 feet. This in my mind 100% checks out and makes sense. I know I argue about dark vision all the time about why creatures do or do not have dark vision. This one makes sense to me. They are underwater; they can see in the depths of the sea. It just makes sense that they have that capability. Um, passive perception is a nine. Languages: Common and Sahuagin, obviously, uh, with a challenge rating of three. Um, if you're going to come across them, so not necessarily one that you want to uh, go toe to toe with, but uh, should you have a strong party probably could survive pretty okay, in my mind. So let's get into some of its really cool capabilities as a warlock. Uh, So they do have something called Blood Frenzy, uh, which basically means that they have advantage on melee attack rolls against any creature that doesn't have all of its hit points. So if something has been attacked, hit, or damaged once, I, it's kind of in my mind that concept of they've spilt blood, so they kind of go into this weird, crazy frenzy. They have innate spellcasting, so their spellcasting ability comes from charisma, as I kind of mentioned already, That um, I do enjoy the fact that they are a charisma-based magic um, character. Um, and then it, of course, has a list of spells that it can innately cast, of course, as like, its boons from its god. Again, we argue about what a charisma-based fighter or... Um, magic creature is capable of doing and i feel like these are very charisma based spells so being able to create an illusion or being able to create armor or just be able to be almost deceptive using its spells so i think it i think it checks out my mind they have limited amphibiousness which basically means that the Warlock can breathe air um, and water Uh, but it does need to be submerged at least once every four hours to avoid suffocating so i think of it like a fish It just needs to be in water every once in a while, so it would be a very, very good battle tactic to get it out of the water for an extended period of time, in my mind, if you were going to be fighting one of these things. They have shark telepathy, so the warlock can magically command any shark within 120 feet uh, using limited telepathy. So I think this one's really fun. Um, I know I've played in a couple of campaigns that have used sharks as um, horde tactics when you're fighting, and it's a lot of fun. So... I feel like if you're going to use these in a battle, please use this, this, this ability if there are sharks in the water. Just do it. And then of course, it is a humanoid, so it has some basic attack capabilities. It does have a multi-attack, uh, so it can make two attacks, one with its bite and one with its sword. Sword of Fathoms. So its bite attack is, of course, just a plus four to hit uh, with a 1d4 plus two piercing damage. It's got some teeth. It's going to bite you. But then its favorite thing, of course, is going to be its Sword of Fathoms, which is a melee weapon plus 4 to hit uh, with a 1d10 plus 2 slashing damage. However, if the target is a creature, it must succeed on a DC 13 constitution saving throw or begin choking. The choking creature is incapacitated until the end of its next turn when the effect ends on it. So very, very interesting um, weaponry here. So yeah, there is a variant that you can use um, along with the weapon here. So, So it's called the Rod of Retribution. So it is thought that the Warlocks that have been around for a longer period of time, probably closer to that husk period and being very like um, controlled or puppetried by uh, Ukatoa, would probably carry this staff. Um, so it basically has the ability to cast retribution three times per day, which basically means that when a creature the warlock can see within 60 feet of it damages the warlock, the creature must make a DC 13 dexterity saving throw taking 2d10 lightning damage on a failed save or half damage on a successful one so a very very interesting little tactic to add in again it's just an extra added boon in my mind that comes from ukatoa for like those special like long time carrying out warlocks right so i do find these guys to be super interesting i would love to see them in a campaign more but i feel like a lot of dm's stay away from water-based campaigns um, it's been very rare that I've seen DMs spend a lot of time in water. Like, Adam aside, we did a pirate-themed campaign. It makes sense that we were near the water a lot. But in others, it's, it's very much more like your, your classic d d thoughts are dungeon crawly. You're on land constantly. Like water is not necessarily something people want to tackle because then you're dealing with swim speeds, breathing, drowning, bat ship battles. All these other kind of, like, components come into play that a DM really has to learn and figure out for themselves of how they want to play it so I feel like it's very rare that I personally have ever played a game where I would come across one of these um, and I would love to see them used more because I think it is very interesting their battle tactics their how they build their clans and have their own following uh, but are very very closely connected to their god because they are within the water on a regular basis right it's almost like they don't have to go find a temple they're around their god all of the time so anyways, those are some of the things that I find super interesting about them Love to hear what you guys' thoughts are on these and how you would use them in a campaign. But I'm going to throw it back to you, of course, audience. You can follow me on Instagram at Zero Mega Zero uh, for any kind of really fun, you know, gaming pictures and uh, just my life. Otherwise, you guys, yeah, have a great week and we will talk to you again. Bye.
1: Can I just say I love Ukatoa as a fathomless warlock patron? He slumbers beneath the waves. And feeds on fear and ambition of humanoids. I friggin' love it. It's got that kind of Cthuloid feel, but is far enough removed that it fits inside of a DD.
0: I also world. like that they keep calling him a Leviathan, but I don't know whether or not it's a legitimate stat block Leviathan. No, it's not. It, it's, or if it's just like a great big underwater a, it's great thing. It's a great big
1: underwater water worm thing. Yeah. Know. Yeah. So.
0: Um, you know, you can definitely tell that they're more concerned with their god. Than they are with their territories or politics or society or anything else. Like, they're not doing raiding parties, you know, for survival. They're doing it yeah. because Ukatoa told them to. You know, you said that the hatchling swarm is the only chaotic evil. These guys are the only neutral evil out there. Yeah. Um, which, which
1: makes sense because they're not so focused about their policies and shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So Megan finally brought it up dark vision.
0: So okay, so hold on. I mentioned this earlier, and I want to. I want to. I want to sure, touch on you, this. Sure, you, okay? take, you take it. We've bitched about it in the past that Tritons don't have dark vision until the recent reprint. Yeah, we know we established earlier that Merfolk don't have dark vision. Yeah, um, and we talked in last week's discussion about sunlight, twilight, and midnight zones, their visibility for the different context. Remember that in the top six hundred fifty feet of water, visibility is the same as it is above the surface. Yeah, but. Bones break at 500 feet of pressure, so you should never be in the dim light of the ocean. So why do they need dark vision? And I've been bracking my brain around this. And I think I have an answer, but I'm not sure it's a great answer.
1: Honestly, I, I... I mean, the answer is because their God gave it
0: to them. I think we're focusing too hard on the fact
1: that it says that bones will break at that depth.
0: It's, But it's at 500 feet, Like right? Even if it's at 550 feet, even if you give or take a tenth... You're still nowhere near the dim light.
1: Yeah, I'm. I mean, I get you, but these guys are also going to be active during the night. They're also going to be active during. Um,
0: That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I think that they are active. I look at when fish are biting. You want to go fishing early in the morning or late, uh,
1: late in the evening, right? I mean, most fish have terrible eyesight as it is. Yep. Yeah. And now we're giving them all really good eyesight, and they're monsters. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to come around.
0: I think that, um, honestly. It's because you are so far below all of these things that can cast shadows. And that's what the dark vision mm-hmm. is for. Yeah. Being active at night, um, attacking first thing in the morning, like at just before dawn and just after dusk. And the idea that you are underneath ships. You are swimming around with giant sharks that are casting shadows down upon you. Yeah. And you're going to be inside structures still. Well, you don't have the sunlight like when the sun goes down behind the horizon things get dark here that doesn't happen underwater it, it's getting darker and darker a lot faster yeah the idea uh, like of daylight it's a narrower window because of refraction yeah and whatnot so if you are in your caves or your little sand dune huts or whatever it is that you want to however you want to picture their societies if they're inside it's going to be dark 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 yeah. right and so i I don't see them as relying on the dark vision, like you know elves do because they're in deep wooded forest all of the time, or dwarves, or drow that are underground or whatnot. I don't even know why gnomes
1: get it. I guess underground stuff.
0: I I get it. I don't know why why merfolk don't. Like I'm really having a struggle with this. I, whole... I
1: kind of want to make them bioluminescent in a way.
0: I really wanted to get into the idea of what light sources you can find underwater
1: in the next episode. Okay, we'll talk about that later. Then let's talk about their spell list right sure. now. Okay, I mean warlock. So warlock. So eldritch blast. Yep. Yep. Minor illusion. Sure. I actually really like that for a water thing because yeah. uh, the exploration pillar in a in the uh, in the sea in the ocean, and now you have a guy throwing up minor illusions. You mentioned refraction earlier. This is going to fuck with your party. Especially especially
0: with the fact these guys have a plus five to persuasion. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Right. So that's going to help them quite a bit. They're going to run the masses. And then, and here's where things get kind of weird. They get the ability to cast once a day, armor of Agathis, arms of Hadar, counterspell, crown of madness, invisibility, and hunger of Hadar. They're warlocks. When the fuck did they get that many spell slots? Because I know I've played a warlock up to level 20 and I got four. Do, you, do warlocks regenerate on a short rest?
0: Yes. These guys don't.
1: I know, but that's like seven spells. Sure.
0: I would just give them six spell slots and say do whatever you want with these. Sure. I hate the once a day for each. If this guy wants to rely on his invisibility, let him. If he wants to rely on his arms of Hadar, let him. Right. I, I hate that. I would love the idea of this guy just being able to blow counterspell, counterspell, counterspell. I don't like the way that they've done this once per day shit Yeah, in in some of the stat blocks. That's fair. But then they don't in others. Like the priestess gets spell slots. Legit spells, yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I think that's their trade-off with the warlock, the limiting of it. Yeah, okay. Is the fact that they're...
1: Yeah, it, they can do a he, bunch gets, of, he gets six spells rather than the two spells at sixth level. Yeah. Yeah, okay, that tracks.
0: It's also interesting to note here that the Rod of Retribution is a variant that you can get in addition to the Sword of Fathoms, so you don't have to pick and choose. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of its connection to Ukatoa, I totally rule that this could be an arcane focus if one of my players picks it up, but I'm not going to just hand them a badass reaction spell like this at third level. The idea that you can just hit something 60 feet away with lightning, 2d10 lightning damage as a reaction, three times a day, Mm -hmm. you're not getting that. It's just an arcane focus. They can do that because they've been blessed by Ukatoa.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I I would agree with you on that one. It, It could definitely outpower things. I want to point out as well that while the Sword of Fathoms does have that cool choking mechanic to it, it, in theory, does not interfere with the rules about a character holding their breath.
0: Which is so weird. I don't know why they do it. They should use a different
1: word other than choking. Yeah. Why would they do a choking mechanic to incapacitate you for a round? So I really am interested in seeing how Mercer runs his drowning rules. Because I have a feeling this would be one of those things he homebrews. Fair enough. I right? just and, and, and has been doing it for so long he just didn't figure it out when he was writing this sword. Which of course was for a character in Critical Role
4: so...
0: Or it, yes. it could have been the choke mechanic. Like, I don't understand how this sword that does slashing damage makes you choke. Are you supposed to be coughing up water?
1: Yes. Yeah. Is, is that what this is? That's what it is, yeah.
0: Well, okay, so it's got a magical effect to it then? Yeah. There's nothing in any of the fucking rules about that. Right? No, it, did. Well, it just mean... it just does it. And it doesn't say there's a magical effect that... It doesn't say anything about spewing up water. You just begin choking. Right, I you could choke if you swallow a fucking peach pit, right? Like, this, <laughs> like it doesn't really give me much more than that. So I'm going to say that this is this was probably designed for when they get up onto your ship deck mm-hmm. or they attack your. That your, is literally or, how
1: it was used in in, in critical role. Then it so, makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
0: You get cut and you start coughing up salt water. Yep. That makes sense. But underwater, does it steal away your held breath?
1: Then, uh, yeah. You're expelling your breath with it. I would say, yeah. I, otherwise, it's helping you.
0: Like, then this thing is not a CR3. The fact that they get this where they can make an attack with this on every single round. Yeah. This is a CR5
1: now. These guys are dangerous. Yeah, yeah
0: they'll, they'll. this is a TPK. You put three of these
1: guys up against your level six party even. I, I And I think, like we said a couple times, a lot of these Sawagan stat blocks looks like they are CR'd when, for when you fight them on land, when, yeah. when you have the advantage of terrain, not them.
0: They are coming to you. You are not going
1: to them. Yeah. So I think the big takeaway from this episode is add a CR to all of them if you are in water. Absolutely. Yeah. At least one. This guy, probably two.
0: All right. Before we go any further, before we jump into our last little bit. Yeah. I want to do a little bit of an acknowledgement here um, to our buddy Dale. Okay. Um, who was letting me know that he's actually been inspired by the podcast, our dragon episodes, to actually publish a couple of things on DMs Guild. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, so uh, he's been working on the Draconic Omnibus. Uh, He's got volumes one and two out, which are the Rose Gold Dragon and a Silver Dragon. Okay. And I looked at the Silver Dragon one specifically, and it offers the dragon background uh, with uh, some options uh, in charts. There's an implied abilities section based on their stat blocks okay which is useful remember we're always bitching about how dragons aren't enough it has spell casting oh good yep a layer and horde details including combat strategies based on age there's a couple magic items a couple of new spells and ideas for using your dragon in a campaign including as a group
1: patron oh that's amazing okay
0: yep and then ideas for using the dragon with your character like contact there's a paladin oath of loyalty that he's made a druid circle of clouds barbarian path of the silver dragon and more he's got one for bard and monk he's got a couple of dragon associated feats some sub sub races sub races variants um and then some more uh some more backgrounds so all of them are available in the DD beyond homebrew section you search for the author Dulos, uh, and i'll put that in the show notes
1: yeah Dulos 12
0: Dulos 12 yeah um and I love that we are inspiring people to think more. That's really what we
1: do this podcast That's what we for. do it for, yeah. yeah. It, it's not just fart and dick jokes. I mean, it's mostly fart and dick jokes. Terry's not in the room anymore, so yeah, it's mostly just fart jokes. The oh. dick's gone.
0: Anyway, I'm glad that there are people that are out there that are that are taking what we're talking about and running with it. We have bitched at length for hours on this podcast yep. about dragons. And I'm glad that there's somebody out there that's trying to design and fix and work on it and whatnot. So, I mean, kudos to you, Dulos, and uh, and we look forward to uh, to seeing more. I know that you're working on a couple of other side projects in the meantime, including stuff uh, that is handling handicapped player characters okay. and making things accessible for for players. That oh, that's can, amazing. Yeah. yeah, so that that's really cool. He's working on that before Volume Three comes out, but. I know he's got a lot of plans in the work and you can talk to him on our subreddit. Yeah, he, I was, was going to
1: mention like he is incredibly active on our subreddit. Um, he's, he's like one of the big posters up there. So um, that's where I know him from. Yeah. And, and I didn't realize that it was him that was, you were telling me about this omnibus. I didn't realize it was him that was putting this together. Yeah. That's so. awesome, man. Um, so if you want to talk to him or us, The Reddit is going to be a great place to go. You keep saying the Reddit and it is our subreddit.
0: Well. The Reddit. Download the Reddit. You can also
1: go to the Instagram and the Facebook. Fuck right (laughs) off. Or if you want to go to the Reddit, you go to r slash it's a mimic. And that is where you will be able to find us. And if you're really a fan of the old fashioned ways, you could reach us through an email at info at itsamimic.com. Because we love hearing from you guys, no matter how you reach us and any questions that you send us, will get added to the lists for our upcoming mailbag episodes. So, Adam, as we go on, I want to grab the dice and roll because it seems like they have made sahawagan to be a, um... Nigh-unpronounceable. A, a nigh-unpronounceable aquatic threat. So, I want to know, Sahwagan pirates, what is your opinion? How do they function as coastal threats? And, uh... I, I And how would you run that? Like, what are you, What are your mobs going to be looking like that level stuff? Sure. Okay? I got a 15. I had a 17. I you have not... Run, no, I, I have not gone first short of one question in like four episodes. Okay, so pirates? Pirates. I'm not doing pirates. You're not doing pirates with these guys? No, these guys are attacking pirates. This is a
0: whole... Div- these guys are an environmental threat in a yeah, lot right. of ways. Okay. They're not out there to... Rob from the rich to fill their pockets. They're sure. they're not outcasts from society. No, these are glorified warriors. You don't you don't have again, I'm gonna lean on to like Klingons for this or Dothraki. There are no pirates, mm-hmm. they are just straight marauders. This okay. is their way of life. Okay so the idea of them being outlaws is ridiculous. They are inherently, and I know, I know we don't like to say inherently evil and D&D races are different and whatnot, yeah. but they have Inherent different um, perspectives on society and civilization, how the world works, and their place within it, and so they are completely willing to attack and fight, and they are vicious right from being hatched. Mm-hmm. I almost said born, but um, right from being hatched. So there is a a level to them where they are intelligent, but their intelligence is based on their environment in a lot of ways, okay. and they're going to use their environment for their like to their advantage. So. I'm not going to have them swing up on a ship with an eye patch and a peg leg. They're not going to be a part of a pirate crew. No. They are going to be their own unique threats. The way that the, now that I look back on it, racist Pirates of the Caribbean movie looked at the natives. Yeah. Oh yeah. The, the headhunters there. And the pirates were separate from the headhunters and ran from the headhunters. Yeah. The Sahuigan fit that role for me of this. Um, even pirates will fight them. If there are, if you are doing a pirate campaign or your privateers, however you want to spin it, and you're up against the Royal Navy and the two of you are battling out and then the Sahuagin show up, we all fight the Sahuagin.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, no, I'm completely with you on that one. I don't see them looting for the Shinies. I don't see them, you know, trying to take treasures that they could barter with later, right? Like there's, there's no reason for them to be engaged in piracy. They're there just because you are not where you are supposed to be and they are going to remove you.
0: I think that they're going to take the bits and pieces that they can get their hands on. I mean, they're... yeah, they're
1: opportunists. So, I mean, they're going to pick up what they can if it's going to have a use to them. But they're not going to the town to barter. No. Right? They're not going to go find that one odd sea elf looking uh, dude and be like, hey, bring us back some gold for this. No, that's that's not how they're going to run. Um, they're mobs. What What are they looking like to you?
0: There's always okay. So they're militant. Are they? uh militant. Yes and no. There are definite leaders among the group, and there will be a pecking order and a hierarchy. But there's no file necessarily. Well, there's
1: not an order. There's not a legion. They're not segmented into.
0: I don't. I don't think so. I think that these guys are a. They're an army the way a militia is. Mm-hmm. So everybody is equal, no matter kind of what their level is except for the two or three guys that are veterans, the champions that have done this before. Those guys over there are super strong, and they've got special weapons or the Coral Smashers, right? So we have a a platoon or a unit of Coral Smashers over there. We've got a high priestess who is um, sitting there trying to to inspire and bless and all that shit, or maybe a warlock of Uk'otoa instead, because we have two different faiths again, right? We've got Sekola. And then Uk'otoa. Uh, then there are a whole bunch more different kinds we'll be covering next week as well. But generally speaking, you have the pyramid again of like the one leader, two or three bodyguard-ish, maybe they're spellcasters, mm-hmm. or like a, a priestess and a champion, right? That are standing on the side of like a baron, right? Yeah. And then and you work your way down. And then beneath the foot soldiers, you have a shit ton of of sharks. Um, I would even say that you would have... They're almost like canine units. Okay. You would have some sections. Like the the guys that get up on the ship themselves are all well and good. They're going to fight hand-to-hand combat. And maybe that's where you find your champions. Because down in the water, your regular Sahuigan, and it's just teaming with them. Yeah. Right? Are hanging out with sharks, waiting with that blood frenzy up. They're ready to go. They can smell the blood in the water. Sahuigan are not there to kindly ask you to leave they are there to remove
1: you and and maybe not chase you away no like they're removing you from the realm of the living
0: yep and i think that a great way of doing that is you know they only need to cut you once
1: and then throw you in the water and then
0: throw you in the water right and then you're done like you are you're a proper fuck then right like you're in trouble so that's that's why i see mobs do you see them any differently than no you? i really don't
1: um i mentioned earlier the the uh creatures from the deep in aquaman that is the way i view a lot of these guys yes Right? they are just horrible misshapen fishmen who are violent and hungry um and you're right i don't think a champion is necessarily directing um you know you go there you swing around back let's do a uh, pincer attack no He's just got this horde and is leading by example. And because of the reverence he has, he is drawing other uh, base level Sahu again to follow him.
0: There's a whole lot of pointing and saying, you over there, go left. Yeah. Right. And so he's commanding in in the battlefield. But these guys, I also think they're hit and run artists, right? They're not going to square up against CLs. And you can see it with the way that they
1: even add their spies in too, right? Right. Okay, let's roll the dice then. Let's talk about a um, single plot hook and a single mini campaign about these guys. Fourteen. Three. There All you right. go. You get to go Sweet. first. Plot hook. Um, I don't know, man. I love the idea of the sahawagan have sunk this ship and it carries something important. I don't want to give too many clues because this is a legit plot thread that my players are chasing right now. But uh, it it any ship... Any ship is going to be susceptible to a Sawagan invasion. And if there is a renowned galleon that has traveled these waters for decades and it just suddenly disappears one day, friends, it's not just possibly, you know, ha- it been moored on the uh, shore and scattered to a beach. No, this thing could be deep down underwater and it could be the new home for aquatic violent tenants. So... I, I like the idea that there is this boat and you got to find out where it is. And it's underwater. And it's underwater. And it's got sawagin Soho- uh, Soho- everywhere around it.
0: I For a plot hook, I'm going to like the idea of uh, they are expanding their territory. You, there's been border skirmishes mm-hmm. for a while. And let's say that there's a lagoon. Sure. And with a port city in it. They are going to expand their territory to include the mouth of the lagoon. Which means you can't get out now. Mm-hmm. All the fishermen, all of the ships coming and going... Will be attacked on site. You are no longer allowed in the waters. And
1: they've got like, you could see them standing on like the, the edges of the bay watching.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Every time that a ship tries to come in, you get the, the figurehead at the front of the ship. Uh, at dawn the next day, it gets like discovered on the docks. The cool. ship is gone. The figurehead
1: is there. Yeah, that's cool. What about a mini campaign?
0: These guys really do scream to me as being surface level attackers okay i'm not really going down into their civilization and habitat that's drow that's merfolk that's yeah. tritons to me i i just don't i just don't see it for these guys you may end up there by accident i like the idea of that that channel with all of the eggs or the coral mm-hmm. or whatever yeah yeah yeah. I think that's a lot of fun but as far as a mini campaign goes um these guys are just going to be your number one territorial bad guy that In are water, a yeah. force of nature as you have to go from
1: one island to another. Yeah, you could have it where you have like a five or six uh, session arc where your party has to figure out safe passage through Sawagan territory.
0: Yeah, and it's going to continue to get worse before it gets better. Mm-hmm. And I would absolutely make a whole bunch of random tables based on how I would put the... Let's say you have got a, a level seven party. With all of the different options, I could build a whole whack of different kind of of encounters against these guys but they're all going to be combat
1: yeah yeah no there, there's not going to be much in the way of social with these guys if if there is a social i mean the standard i think with the oh how do you end up having a
0: social encounter with gnolls these guys are kind of in the same realm yeah, as yeah. that. and for me it's there's a bigger threat on the horizon there's something that the kraken is coming and they need your help to fend them off right but the moment you start to bleed in the water yeah <laughs> right yeah, I mean, like you're not wrong uh it's they're not they're not mindless they're not dumb like sharks they're not going to to get in
1: there and oh you're bleeding i'm going to kill you but they're going to suddenly get all worked up yeah anyways that is a decent portion of what we could find on 5e on sahu but we're only half done don't forget to come back next week when we cover even more kinds of sahu and another one of their mortal enemies that's it for this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can head on over to www.itsamimic.com and hit our fancy donate button or tell your friends and the rest of your D&D party about the podcast. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. Stay safe out there.
2: Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com
6: time for the post credits brought to you by kyle i guess uh my question about uh, swajin would be do you think they lay eggs or do they mate like regular humanoids Uh, basically i'm wondering if my bard Will be able to seduce it, or do they just not have the functioning parts, or would they just do mouth stuff? Can we just say
0: no? Uh, no, I want to roll for this, Dan. Uh, uh, what do I get? It, I got an eighteen. I got a twelve. Okay, look, we already established that they lay eggs, right? They're hatchling yes, swarm, yes. right? Yeah. Um, and I don't think I, I, you know what? Do they have penises? Do they make? Like no, they're fish animals? people. So they do, even the men just open up the, the sack and and let the. Let the water get murky with their seed? Sure. Is that what we're doing? So you could swim through... Sure. ...the mating waters of the Sahuigan, Dan? The what ocean you're...
1: is salty for a reason. That's disgusting.
0: <laughs> I knew we'd bring up semen at some point. We're <laughs> talking about, about Sahuigan. Um, <laughs> Different kind of seaman. Will the bard be able to seduce? <laughs> Fucking no. No, I don't think so. Um, but mouth stuff, I could see that. I mean, they're going to use teeth. I mean... Sometimes you could be into that, though, right? Uh, not when they're pointed. Sometimes Terry could be into that, right? Yeah, the only, Chain
1: and the the only like real water Zenibar that I that are. I
0: expect to see anywhere in the Nine Hells is the River Styx, and you're not fucking around in that.
1: And it's, it's not really even water, as it? Like, it, it splashes, but it's soul juice.
0: Dan... You and I have very different definitions of what soul juice is, but let's continue.
1: Okay, sounds good. Uh, now Sawhagen have <laughs> moist soul gross, juice. Gross! Stop it! Stop it! Now Sawhagen have close ties to fucking his Dave here. What the shit?
5: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Are we doing this? Is this
9: a, is
0: We're
5: this doing a podcast, podcast right now, yeah. right? I said come on, so who are gone? I said come on, so who are gone? Everybody to the limit, everybody to the limit, everybody come on, for who gods. so who are gone? So who gone. That's the one. So who again? For who gods? So who
6: gone? Okay. Sawajin. 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 I am going to fuck that up on about the fourth time I say it. Uh, but here we go.
2: <laughs> Ukatoa. Ukitoa. Yeah. Sa so again? Sa so who again? All right, guys, let's try this. Sa so
8: who again? So who again? Oh, fuck!
2: Thank you for listening to an It's a Mimic production.
1: Okay, you're done, guys. <laughs>
2: <laughs>